All right, and good evening. Let me check. Yes, microphone is on. Yay, I did a good. <laughs> Hello, everyone, and welcome to another Merged Worlds Dungeons and Dragons story stream. Um, this is uh, hopefully going to be a big one. Hopefully, some people. I'm going to give a few minutes to let folks show up. Uh, hopefully, people are interested. Hello, Teresa. Uh, Panda's here. Hey, Panda. Yeah, we're going to handle your stuff here in just a minute. In fact, for those of you just tuning in, uh, a couple of little things we're going to talk about, uh, as well as I've got a package, I guess you could say fan mail, that arrived today. Ashley White. Hey, here we are here. <laughs> Hello, Ashley and Jim, Panda and Teresa. I appreciate you guys coming by. <laughs> Hi, Mrs. Draven. Hi. Now, uh, Lady Draven is here today because... Uh, we have been sent a present in the mail, and it has arrived in the Only Driven Gaming uh, P.O. Box today. And I'm going to open it on stream, uh, but I was advised that there is something in there for her as well, so I had her come down to make sure she could, you know, see her loot. Um, but today is the first Merged Worlds on a Thursday. It's new time slot. So uh, I know for some folks this may be a little bit easier to come to. For some folks it may be a little bit harder. Um, hopefully we everyone will get to work it out eventually. Um, as of today, Merged Worlds is officially every Thursday night at 8 p.m. Eastern. Um, and every Thursday night, Merged Worlds has now moved to a weekly series. So instead of three episodes and then one off, it's every week from this point on. So assuming, you know, the world doesn't end, I'm going to keep telling this story every Thursday. So I thank you all for coming by and giving me the opportunity to do so. Um, I'm very excited for tonight. We have a couple uh, very important story events. Yeah, she's, she's laughing because she, I already told her what's going to happen. Some very happy story, of, or not happy, uh, epic, hopefully, epic, cool story events that are going to happen tonight that uh, definitely changed stuff back in the day uh, and hopefully you guys will find it interesting as well. I have every belief that we will finish up this uh, chapter of our character's stories this evening. Uh, hopefully I won't have to run too long or get done early. Timing I've been working on but we'll see. So um, for those of you who've popped in uh, real quick before I start uh, one of our community members Turtle told me that he had gone to a Dollar Tree. And that is like a dollar store where everything is a dollar. And he had told me he'd found some sets of Dungeons & Dragons dice there for a dollar. And I went to one today and found them as well. These were a buck for a set of dice. These are the six dice that I bought. And I got another six sets for her. So there were six different colors. I got uh, brown, green, blue, purple, yellow, and red. Um, I haven't opened mine yet, but... Uh, Got to see each one of each set. So if you have a Dollar Tree in your area, you might want to swing by and check out the toy section. If you are a gamer or a D&D player, uh, you might find yourself some pretty cool looking dice. I'll be honest with you. For, uh, uh, they're, they're slightly marbled, so they're not just like a plain red. Um, for a dollar, it's hard to turn that down. So the more dice, the merrier, right? Uh, Jim says, this is awesome. My weekend starts at 7.30 on Thursdays, so mergers will now start my weekend. Excellent! Which is good and bad, because it'll start your weekend and potentially ruin it. Yes, dice goblins rejoice. The lady went from three sets of dice to nine today, so 200% increase over here for her. Um, me, I, I will add these to the pile. <laughs> Much like a fat Canadian dragon sitting on his pile of 
coins. It's just me rolling around on dice, being all happy and excited. <laughs> so before we get into the story today, again, I have received a package. Um, and so we're going to open that up because I always like to open packages uh, on the stream from people who sent them. Uh, so I'm going to go ahead and lift this up here. So it's, it's a big old box. Okay. So um, I'm going to open it up. Now I kind of know what she, her thing is. But I don't know what my thing is. So there's two things in here. And I don't know what either is. So. Yeah, she doesn't know anything. <laughs> uh, for the record, this is a cool dragon knife that I've had for a few years. It's my favorite one to open, so I'm very sharp. I'm trying to gently make sure I just cut the tape and not into the package at all. And we're going to open up and see what's in here. Now, the only hint I have about mine is they said it was good that I was opening it on a D&D &D night. So we'll see what that means. Oh, my goodness, there's a note. Um, we're going to hope, uh, I'm going to read this, and unless I come across something that's a hint, and then I'll stop. It says, hey, Draven, uh, I want to show my thanks for the, oh, hopefully it's okay. Can I read this? I should ask. Miss Panda Blossom, our moderator, is the one who sent this. Panda, is it okay if I read the note, or is it, should this just be for me? Because I don't want to read stuff if it's if it's a personal thing. Um... So I'll give just a second. Uh, yee, I can. Okay, good. Wanted to show you thanks for the awesome content you provide. Adequate content. Uh, uh, when, I, when I injured my hand in November, I had no idea if or when I would be able to do what I love again. You really helped me pull through that difficult time with your videos. Hope you love your Merge Worlds themed plush. I know it's not quite canon for the character, but this is my... This is my coolest and favorite pattern. Enjoy Panda. P.S. I hope the lady loves her squishy. Squish? Okay. Now, let's see which one. Let's see what this is. I believe this is the ladies. Oh. Yes. It's a bat. <laughs> Thank you. Oh my God, it's huge. Yes. Panda made that for you. Okay, I was letting her do that first, then I will dig deeper. That is a big old bat. When I saw the picture, I did not know it was that big. Set that there. Oh, wow. Oh, wow. Oh, it's an Omniana-themed dragon. For those of you who are uh, fans of... Merged worlds should know that Omniana is the god of chaos and uh, order in one body. And this is their, uh, this is them in a dragon body. It's got the merged world design on the back of its tail here. And its eyes are 20 sided dice. Um, I think it is epic that the blue one has a 1 and the red one has a 20. So it's a 1 and a 20 roll. Oh, that is, that is kick-ass. That is phenomenal. Oh, check that out. I didn't see on the head. Little ODG. Oh, my God. That is phenomenal. That is going to be going up right behind me. I may, I'm going to have to move some stuff around because I want this up on the back. This is beautiful. Thank you so much, Panda. My God, the amount of work that goes into something like this. I can't believe it. And you have the biggest bat ever. <laughs> Fluffy wings. You didn't know it was a bat? No, I thought she, was... she didn't realize it was a bat. What did you think it was? It's a bat with wrappy arms. 
That's huge. It is huge. <laughs> Panda, you did phenomenal. Uh, that is awesome. I believe that Panda does make and sell these on her uh, her Etsy. So um, hopefully we can have her, uh, if, if she hasn't, throw a link up to that either in chat or on the uh, Discord for anybody who would like to look into getting something like this themselves. Again, I'm going to show it off a little bit here. This is a Merge Worlds themed Omniana Dragon Plush. That is the hot sauce right there. I love that. It's so well done. So well made. That is beauty. Okay. Um, well, I'm going to, I want to set them somewhere where the cats won't get them for right set now. Set them right here. The cats will get them there. I don't want them there because the cats will get them. I'm going to set him on. Oh, that's too big. I know. I'll set him up here. No, it's too big. He's so big and pretty. <laughs> there we go. He fits right here. I'm going to set him right there for now. I'm going to rearrange the shelves. I've talked about how I want to rearrange these things. So hopefully that won't be blocked by my fat head for too long. But I'm going to, I have him on the shelf right now and I will, I'll be moving over in a minute once she goes. Um, concept sketches. Very awesome. Thank you again so very much, Panda. That is phenomenal. I'm so excited to have that on the set. I'm going to have that up there. Throw a link up to the Etsy and my Instagram. Dragons on our Etsy yet because they're crazy to make. Oh, okay. Understandable. Well, that means I like it even more. Thank you very much. So, yeah. Um, that's pretty boss. Baby, can I get you get rid of this for me? Do you mind sitting that over there out of the way? Behind you. Not there. In front of this camera. <laughs> Thank you. Well, I know the, she's going to head on out, and I'm going to start my epic tale. Uh, but she likes it. Get her cuddling with it. <laughs> you have to go show your mom. I'll go show her right now. Okay, she's going to go show her mom. Thank you, Panda. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> All right. All right. Good sauce. Wow. That is uh, pretty bun. Uh, should I put them just in the Discord somewhere or the chat? Do both. I don't mind. Do not mind at all. Not at all. Feel free to throw a link up here. If people are interested in amazing stuff, that hits the list. My goodness. My goodness indeed. Okay. Whew. So. Wow. What a way to start the stream. Again, thank you. I know I said that like five times, but I, I love that. That's beautiful. Again, I'm, I can kind of see him back there right now. I gotta, I'm gonna find a better spot for him. I'm adjust some shelves, and I think I'm gonna set them right up there where all that kind of middle crap stuff is. Move some. A lot of that stuff is stuff I've had for a while that I just was filling the shelves with. So I'm gonna move some of that stuff out of the way and put that badass up there. Okay. All right. Whew. My goodness. So, uh, what do you say we get down to it then? Shall we? Uh, we've got some, uh, some stuff to do today. Um, yes, yes. So, uh, in our last episode, minor recap, of course, for those of you who are just tuned in, um, our heroes are on the world of Eloin, uh, inside of a magical book from the Sands, which is a great library of the history of everything that's ever happened anywhere. Uh, they're reliving the history, and they are trying to find how their magical staff, Menandra, which has Michael, their loved ones and friends' soul trapped inside, got enchanted to become the artifact weapon they know it is, and hopefully have that done to theirs instead of the original. They are traveling with an elven general, ready for it, named Menandra, Kalinkadink, probably not, and a dwarf named Fenton, who is uh, a paladin of the light. 
Menander was as well, but she has lost her faith and now is just a pretty B.A. lady fighter elf. But her sons died, uh, where she saw her sons torn apart by El, uh, undead, as this world is a world of undead. There are very few left survivors, and they've been traveling south to try to find the source of what it is and see if it can be stopped, because if somebody doesn't do something, uh, the world will never ever will become a world of the dead. It's already pretty much that way. So they uh, headed south, and their goal was to get to uh, a temple. There was a temple that was the orders of uh, Fenton's paladins was their primary uh, temple slash fort slash keep on the top of a mountain uh, in the center of a large, large valley. Uh, they went there in the hopes that maybe there is some type of resistance and that their other uh, paladins there might be able to help them and maybe if they join together, so on and so forth. Because there, there is something called the uh, Stone of Light, which is a very interesting artifact uh, and the, what the order is based on. Traveling there, they arrive to find that there does in fact seem to be some survivors there, but the valley surrounding the mountain has tens of thousands of undead just milling around. Something is keeping them from being able to walk up the road that wraps around the mountain to get to the top of the keep. So our heroes use their flying carpet to shoot over there. Landing, they found that there were five I believe it was five. Let me verify. One, five surviving paladins uh, who are relatively young uh, by all, all points. All the other elder paladins tried to escape, to go for help and such. They weren't trying to leave them. These five stayed behind to protect the keep and they've been basically running out of food and water and all that stuff ever since. So um, now that they've, our heroes have arrived, Fenton being the eldest of the order, they're excited to have somebody there to give them some orders, you know, because they really weren't intended for this. He was Chris, who, Christopher, who is the uh, kind of the in charge of the five, is a young man himself, late 20s, early 30s, but by a leadership scale in this order, still pretty young. Fenton's a few hundred years old at this point, so they are very, very happy. Uh, Gore-Tex, I see your question. How's your day been? It's been a really good day today, so thank you for saying, asking. <laughs> um, so yes, yes. So they arrived there. Uh, Fenton wanted to pray at the stone and locked himself in the chapel. Menander gave him 24 hours to do so. Uh, while they were waiting for him to come out, um, a beast flew and landed at the bottom of that road, and a rider got off. He shattered the spell that was protecting this keep and came walking up the road with the army of the undead behind him. He blew open the gates, walked in, and it turns out that it is a death knight, for those of you who know anything about Dungeons and Dragons, Death Knights are pretty badass boss-level monsters most of the time. Um, and he was also, his name was Van Morin, and he was also uh, a paladin of this order at one point, but he is a fallen knight. Uh, different than Menandra, who lost her faith, this guy literally traded in his belief to, to go to the dark side, if you will. Uh, for power or for whatever the reason is. It's never really explained his story. Uh, I have ideas about it, but uh, down the road... Uh, that may be something I, I would mind fleshing out a little bit more of Menandra's story and Fenton's story in the past, if people are interested in knowing more about that. Maybe. Um, but he started attacking, and they were fighting, and he killed one of the young knights. Has a, he has a power word kill thing that he used that uh, just straight up kills somebody, and they're all fighting, and he's, he's pretty B.A., you know, they're fighting as best they can. They tried to get Fenton out of there, but Fenton's inside doing his praying thing, and they had to take him on himself. So this fight was going on, and the Death Knight was 
doing a lot of damage. Like I said, he's already killed one of the young paladins. And then Fenton comes out of the chapel, and he's like all glowy with a holy light kind of thing. Um, his faith has been renewed. It would appear that praying and communing to Manara, goddess of light, uh, that his goddess has replied to him. And his faith is renewed, and he comes out as just a pretty powered-up uh, paladin at that point. Um, and the last thing... I can't remember the exact words I used, but something is like, uh, he said something epic, and then he slams his hammer down into the ground, and that's where we ended last time. So we're going to continue with that, because that's how stories work. <laughs> um, but I will say, thank you all for coming by, before I jump into the, today's story. Uh, if you have a good time today, please remember to click the like button. Most importantly, remember to subscribe to the channel so you can see all these types of adventures and stories as they come out. Um, I will also say that I have a website called OnlyDraven.com. You can find links for all of my social medias, my streaming schedule, and information about Merged Worlds on there. I mention that because today I announced a social media contest, and you got the chance to win yourself some loot. Uh, so you might want to swing by my social medias and get a little information about that. I'll be posting it on the um, uh, Discord channel after this, after the stream tonight. Um, so yeah, I've also gone and I've replaced the pictures of actors and actresses that originally were representing characters, and I've replaced them with the miniatures I've, I've designed on Hero Forge. So there's a much larger list of actual characters there. You can use the reference. I've only got about half of them up. Uh, I was working on that before the stream. I will have the rest of those up uh, probably by tomorrow evening at the latest. So just the same. So where we left off... Fenton crashed his large warhammer into the ground. And as he does, the ground cracks. And almost like, like a lightning pattern, zigzags towards the Death Knight, who just basically barely has to jump out of the way before light comes flashing out of the crack. And as he does, he pulls his hammer up. And again, it's a big, heavy warhammer, but he lifts it up with his one hand. And the Death Knight pulling himself off the ground, upset at this, of course. He's a creature of quite power. He's not used to having uh, to dive out of the way. But he sees a powerful spell. He knows when he sees it. So he dove out of the way. He gets himself back up. And he's kind of looking. And, and, he, 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 and he just you hear him hissing the word Fenton. And Fenton's like, yes. He goes, I remember you too, traitor. But you have no power here any longer. The light is with us. And we will free the world from your darkness. And before the Death Knight can say anything, Fenton goes charging in. The heroes are like, yay, and also go charging in. But at the same time, the Death Knight, with a wave of his hand, the undead start pouring through the open door. Just so much that they start pouring up over the walls, like just ants attacking. The undead just start strumming through. And the battle really hit that. It became very much Fenton and Menandra against the Death Knight, while everyone else was really trying to defend against the undead. Because um, most of the undead were basic undead. Zombies, skeletons, there was no real powerful things like vampires in there. It's all lower level undead. But again, there's a lot of them and they don't get tired. So that's a stressful situation for anybody. Uh, so they're just chopping away, and Darsh and Mercy are doing, you know, lion's share of stuff, uh, trying to keep, with the other paladins, trying to keep the wave from kind of going around and flanking them, uh, and getting to, of course, Tobias and Artemis. Artemis now has started whipping out her uh, 
turn undead ability again. Uh, while it w did not work on the Death Knight, it is working on a large amount of these low-level undead. They are becoming confused and stumbling around, in some cases even attacking each other or turning around and trying to leave again, which just is plugging up the holes. Some are trying to get in, some are trying to get out. The Death Knight's power over them is clearly strong as well, but he's a little preoccupied right now, facing against Fenton and Menandra. So, that battle goes on, and, and while it's going on, I mean, you can hear Fenton singing, and his way singing is prayers. It's like songs of battle, and even Menandra ends up joining in. These are songs that the paladins would often sing uh, while fighting together against darkness. And Fenton starts it, but even Menandra, being feeling that aura of, of hope and light from Fenton, can't help but join in, which just makes men more and even angrier, of course. It just brings back memories. So that fight goes on, and even though Fenton's now, you know, powered up, if you will, he's still fighting a death knight. I didn't change anything. This is this is a very powerful beast. Its touch can literally cause you intense pain, freeze your skin kind of thing, you know? Still got the power word kill. He can't just keep shooting those off. That's a powerful spell. He can bust out one of those every so often. He's already used it. So there, he, there's not really a fear of that, but that doesn't mean he doesn't have other spells, fireballs and things. And indiscriminately, he doesn't care if he toasts any of the zombies in around, so he starts whipping out a few spells and lightning comes out and Tobias is doing his best to trying to deflect and shield. He stopped doing damage and now he's doing what he can to either try to contain what Van Morin is doing, which isn't easy because even though Tobias is at a point where he's a pretty good mage, he's nothing compared to the magical abilities of the Death Knight. So he's trying to defend or, or protect with shield spells and stuff. Uh, Fenton and Menandra while trying to block some of the uh, spells of them. And he's not trying to block them as much as to try to uh, what you would, tamper them down, make them not as powerful. You know, he can't stop them, but he might be able to make them do less damage with other things he can do. And normally he would, Van Morn, would, uh, Death Knight, would be going right after Tobias because Tobias is definitely messing with his magic mojo. He's still a hell of a warrior. He still has all the skills he had in life, except now he's better, stronger, faster, all that kind of stuff. Um, but Fenton's not giving him any chance. Fenton is just on him back to back. And normally Menandra's the better fighter of the two. But in this, where light is fighting darkness, Fenton is just walloping Van Morin. And there's several good shots, because as the our heroes are battling the zombies and trying to figure out what to do, they... Uh, I gave them snippets of, you You know, at one point, Fenton hits him hard in the chest, which for a normal person would just crush their chest with that strength. For Van Morin, he slid back five feet and then gets and just comes charging back in again. He took damage, his armor's dented, but he came back in again. Ribs broken, don't bug him. So the battle went on for a while, but the undead teeming over the walls, again, it's not like a wave of water real fast. It's a slow build, but it's getting faster and faster and more and more tumbling over as the zombies coming up the road are climbing on the bodies of the zombies in front of them to get forward. And many of them are just falling off the side of the road. I mean, it's, it's literally a road that wraps around a mountain. It's falling down, shattering, and the bodies smashing on the rocks as they go. But the zombies don't care. They just keep piling up. But for every one that, or two that falls, another one gets closer to the top. And they start coming over the walls. The, the, the gate member was ripped open, so it's not all the way open. But they're still teeming through that hole. So this was a very big fight for these guys, the characters as well. And they were whipping out a lot of stuff. The Artemis with her spells. And uh, Tobias was helping Fenton and Menandra 
So I took him out of their fight so much. Because again, he's an NPC and I want them to deal with some of their own stuff. Um, to resolve the issues themselves. They can't always depend on the NPCs to do everything. So um, Dandy starts whipping fire. She's literally making Molotovs. And it's things that Dandy, that they have in the chest of holdings. They, they, some have been stored there from the uh, paladins and stuff. This is stock that they had. And Dandy starts whipping fire into the zombies. Which is, of course, good and bad. Good, it's going to destroy a bunch of zombies. Yay. Bad, because now there's flaming zombies. It doesn't stop them. Um, but it does help dwindle their numbers back. And it definitely helps provide a lot of light. Because while Fenton is glowing and that helps, it's still nighttime. You know, uh, and this has definitely helped lighting up the area. It's easier to see where all the zombies are when they've got flames on. It's around this time that Menandra scores a really big hit on Van Morin. And it, while she does, he also gets a big hit. It's like a trade-off. Like, he allows himself to take that hit while he is able to give one himself. And with his, it's just like a gauntlet fist, but it's like right to the side of her under her chin, under her throat. And she falls back coughing and gasping because literally he almost crushed her windpipe. Like she can't breathe and she's on her knees. And Fenton calls on a spell and he literally summons light down, which again is a cleric ability, but he, he summons holy light and it comes down and hits him and Van Morin. And Van Morin just screams as he stumbles back out of it. And Fenton is just standing there in this light. That's just, it's almost like the light, it's almost like the light's physical. Like it's like water. It's like liquid. Like you can feel the light has a texture to it. But it's just almost blinding to even, that even the zombies are being pushed back from it. Um, but Van Morin has to stumble back out of the way because, and as he turns, you can see parts of him are got steam and smoke. The parts that were closest to it are steaming up where the light was burning him. And he starts yelling out some words that they don't understand. And Fenton, drawing his hammer, decides he's going to end this. And he leaves Menandra, hoping, because you know, he would love to turn and, he and heal her, but he can't leave himself open to Van Morin. He's got to end this. And he just starts running towards Van Morin. But as he does, a giant shape and a thing comes crashing down into the, into the middle of all of this. In the last second, Fenton manages to dive out of the way. And Darsh manages to grab Artemis and roll out of the way. And everybody kind of gets out. But the Drake lands. And Van Morin hops on its back. And it takes off into the air. And it floats there for a minute. And he screams down. You know, your typical villain stuff. is like, this isn't over. I'll see you again. Uh, I'll be here forever. But your time is our limited kind of thing. Um, and the Drake takes off. But that doesn't stop the zombies. You know, Fenton tries. Fenton spins and runs back to heal Minara, who's at this point almost passed out from not being able to breathe. Because as a paladin, he has some heals himself, especially now in uh, uber holy mode. Um, he's able to lay on hands and, and heal her. But the undead are again swarming out, and time is of the essence. So at this point, Dandy's yelling, "Everybody, get into the chest!" And they're trying to. She takes the chest and she kind of she chest of holding shrinks it because it was in the in the outer area, and runs back into the corridor where the Stone of Light is, and ignores the whole no one else is supposed to be in there. And she goes in and sees it's a very nice room, but she doesn't have time to look at stuff. She drops it down, grows it up again, and as everybody's falling back, because there's just these two big doors, they start pulling the doors closed, you know, well, as they can, and they, they get it mostly closed, but they can't get it all the way. It's not locked, and the dead will eventually uh, pry through. Fortunately, it's a, it's a pull door, so they're pushing against it. The zombies aren't smart enough to pull. And everybody starts jumping into the chest. 
The only people who don't are Darsh and Dandy. And Dandy gets on the flying carpet after she shrinks the chest. She gets it flying and she's about ready to go. And then she goes zooping around the room because it's a round chapel. Just zooping around the room, gaining speed. And she's almost at the doors. Darsh just heaves the door open. He had to make some pretty strong strength checks for that. And he manages to heave the doors open a chunk where some of the, bo- the bodies come tumbling back. And she swoops down and he jumps on it. Um, but he's not the only one. Two zombies got on, managed to grab onto him. And as they're flying out of there, it's he has to fall and he's on his stomach because it's it's going up and normally they're holding on to it. You know, there's, there's, there's gravity. He's holding on to it and he's kicking at these zombies. And Dandy's like trying to wiggle the zombies off of Darsh. At the same time, she's like, stop, stop, because he's, he's trying to hold on. And then Dandy's, you know, you don't have to steer it. There's no steering wheel. So she turns around and ends up whipping a couple daggers down and thwapping the Zomb- couple zombies that fall off Darsh's legs and he crawls up and they, they, they manage to get on there. But as they turn around, they see that the chapel flares brightly for just a moment. Enough that they can see a stream of undead just pouring off the sides of the road. But then the light fades out completely and it goes dark. And they, but they still see the dead. You know what I mean? They can still see them in the moonlight still making their way up the road. So while there was one last blast from the Stone of Light to wipe out a bunch of dead, the Stone of Light and that temple are no longer protected. They've been basically... There's no one left living there. The gods have no reason to protect it. Because again, zombies are not going to be able to touch that sword either. It's just sitting there. So maybe one day in the future, or in the past, depending on the situation, this is the way the story works, someone on this world actually got it again. Who knows? Story for another time. So, not knowing exactly what to do, their plan had been, before Van Moren showed up, that they were going to continue south, because uh, they didn't know where else to go. But with the information they got from Van Moren, the comment that you know his master rose from Shirash and brought the death of the world with him, that's a clue, because Shirash is a massive volcano-mountain combo down in the land of Shorn, which is where they were kind of heading anyways, kind of where the dead originally came from. At least it seemed that way. They all came from the south, heading north. So, as soon as possible, they uh, they bring the flying carpet down onto an elevated area. And that ended up becoming one of their kind of things from this point. Moving south, they stuck to using the flying carpet a lot more than they did before, um, endangering the chance that they run into a flying undead. Um, but the reason for that is, is as they continued south at this point, the amount of undead they see just gets more and more. And finding open, safe areas, nearly impossible. Finding high areas and rocks and mountains, things that the dead... Unless they, you know, because the dead don't always see them. They're still trying to be sneaky. But they're looking for mountains and hills and such. And to be honest, the closer they get to Shorn, the better luck they have with that. Because it's a very mountainous, rocky, cliff, jagged kind of thing. Rivers of lava running through it. Very little vegetation. What trees and stuff grow, they're very sturdy and not very attractive. Um, so there's just, you know, a lot of nasty there. But there's also a lot of sharp cliffs and rocks and jagged things that... 
it would be very hard for someone to just climb up, especially something dead who doesn't have that coordination, uh, that they can land on and, uh, and take shelter for the evening, get out, stretch their legs, fill the chest up with air, those kind of things. Because Shorn is about three times the distance away from the temple as uh, Panamore was to the temple. So they've got to go a lot further. So they're going to need to fly if they're going to make it any semblance of time. Because let's remember, our heroes are on a schedule. There is a time limit to this, and a lot of time is going by. They've been here several months at this point, traveling and flying and fighting. They've got to figure out what happens, and they're kind of invested at this point in what's going on. They don't even know if what they're doing is going to help them, if they're headed in the right way to do what they need to do. They may have already messed up somehow and changed things. The only thing they can do is continue on, hoping that they'll have the opportunity to save Michael through some type of action. So as I said, they travel south. Now, this is important because, uh, like I said, a lot of times they try to find small caves to hide in, high up, or even just small indentions where they can go in there and maybe get some cover. Because when it rains, it's cold rain. It's an uncomfortable wet rain. As they get closer to shore, and there's less and less of that, um, but it's not like acid rain or nothing like that. It's it's still regular weather. Uh, but as they get closer to a hotter area, the rain could become more of an issue. And that's something that they have to be aware of. That it's known that there are nasty storms that will go through Shorn. It's rare that they happen, but when they do, they're pretty severe. And uh, being caught out in them is a problem. This whole trip they've gone, they haven't seen anything flying. They've been watching for that. Signs of more drakes or Van Morrow following them or anything like that. But... They don't see anything like that at all. At this point, they feel like left him. I mean, he may know where they're going. He may not, right? Whether he's following them, they don't know. But they continue south. I mention the caves and such because um, at night, very often, right, uh, there'll be someone on watch, you know, take their turn. Uh, if they have a good enough cave that they can block it off by hanging up some skins or a blanket or something where they can light a small fire for warmth, they'll do that. You know, leave enough air for ventilation, but enough to hide the flames, uh, the light from a distance. These guys have done this type of stuff before. They know what's going on. Um, but in these, in these situations that, you know, they don't get to talk much. They talk some in the chest of holding, and they rotate who's usually sitting out on the carpet. Uh, but it's usually almost always going to be Darsh or Mercy or Tobias, who occasionally is casting a spell... Um, to try to find if he can find anything living or anything that might help them on their quest. Uh, Artemis never out there. Remember, Artemis has a fear of heights. So anytime there's an opportunity to be in the chest when they fly on the carpet, she is always taking that option. Um, because being on the carpet, if she has to, she can, but it's a horrible experience for her. She has that bad fear of heights. So she's in there a lot, and she... Uh, she finds that, you know, they're learning a lot about Aloyne and the history and the history of the knighthoods. Fenton uh, gets to tell them the story of uh, how when he was praying, he heard the soft feminine voice of the goddess. And while he doesn't even remember the words now, he only said that, he only remembers that there is hope. And then that hope, you know, is in their hands that if there's any chance of saving this world from darkness, uh, they have to be willing to do whatever it takes. And that they would, that the goddess would help when she can. So clearly gave him some uber ability. He's not all glowing all the time now. That was in that fight, you know, right after the, that moment when his faith was renewed. 
Uh, granted, he got all of his cleric-y skills a little bit boosted for that fight, but a lot of that is, you know, just like charging up your faith, like charging up your battery, right? And you're, you're on full charge, you're a lot brighter kind of thing. <clears throat> but he's he's telling, he's talking to the other paladins and talking about his stories and his adventures and things of that nature, and, you know, kind of, well, they didn't know him real well, but now they're getting, as he's their technical leader, um, and if the if, if there are any more out there, he's still probably one of the oldest. So uh, if the goal is to eventually save the world and rebuild the knighthood and bring back the living, a lot of that's going to fall in Fenton's hands. You know, Menander maybe, if uh, her faith is restored. And she still feels uh, a little bit. Uh, you can tell she's, she feels a little bit better with Fenton's ability to, you know, that kind of stuff. But it's still one of those things where she has not yet found her faith. Well, she's now she's like she accepts yeah okay the gods are still out there but they still let this happen you know one of those kind of things so it's during one of these evenings in a in the in a cave that they found where it's all tied off and one of the paladins uh Christopher is they've they've got a blanket tarp over the thing so they can have a small fire in there for warmth um he's kind of at the thing watching you know, make sure nothing's coming. Even though they're really high up, the chance is little to none, but they don't need a flying thing to come up here and cause problems. So he's watching, and Mercy, unable to sleep, is she just finished her watch, and she's sitting by the fire, and she grabs herself another bowl of the stew-type kind of soup stuff that they'd made for dinner that night, chewing on some tough bread, you know. Because back then, you know, they made bread and jerky and meats and cheeses and stuff. They just didn't go bad because they were out of the fridge for a day. That stuff sits on a shelf for weeks and stuff, and you still eat it, it's just chewy. You know, cut off the moldy part and keep going. So they, they have a lot of that in their own chest of holding. Which, for the record, inanimate objects, never really touched upon this, inanimate objects don't seem to age in there. None of their food has ever gone bad while it's in the chest of holding. It's just something they've always kind of taken for granted. We've talked about it as a DM and the players, that yes, while things are in there, Food items don't spoil, but time does still move forward. Um, you know, because like I said, they can run out of air and die. So obviously it's not infinite. You know, they're not frozen while it's happening. They're alive in there and able to talk and move around. They just can't open it from the inside. You know. uh, but the food stores they had were pretty plentiful because they it's a, there's a lot of space in there. It's a big room with shelves and hooks for hanging things, and they've got chests of coins in the corner in case they've got to pay for something important. You know, you never know what you're going to need on a trip. Extra weapons, extra armor, extra clothes, food, barrel of pickled fish. Always got to have a barrel of pickled fish. It's important in every adventure. Please remember that. If you play any type of role-playing game, somehow get a hold of a barrel of pickled fish. You can thank me later. So. Mercy finds herself sitting there eating some of her stew. She hears movement from a bit deeper in the cave. It's a dead cave. There's no monsters. I mean, dead end. They know that. And a moment later, she sees Tobias come up and sit down the fire across from her. She offers him the ladle. He nods, takes some, and scoops some in a bowl, says he wants some music. Tobias occasionally talks in his sleep. He mumbles. Uh, he can't quite make out what he says, but it's very, very... Clearly, he's having some form of nightmares. And a lot of times, he'll waking himself, and nobody really talks to him about it, you know, but he wakes himself up and then sometimes has a hard time going back to sleep. And he's sitting there with Mercy, just across from the fire, and I know where he's like, 
I have to ask you something. Mercy's mouthful of stew is like, well, of course, go ahead. He's like, do you remember what happened to you in Oramon? Now, this is a conversation Mercy has not had with many people. Ulrich and Artemis, of course, and Darsh, who was there. She's told it with basics. Most of her knights know the threats. She went through most of the detail with them, but... Everybody else, it's kind of one of those things. She, once she tells the story, she doesn't want to bring it up again. You remember, she was tortured and stuff for months before she was put into the gladiatorial arena with Darsh. And she nods. She, she, goes, she goes, most of it. And he nods. And he nods back, and they just kind of sit there in silence, both looking at the fire. It's not a big fire, but he's poking at it with a stick while eating his stew. And he's like, I remember all of it. Every second. I know you said that they blocked your memory of it and tried to take it away so they could look through your eyes and the female wizard that was there managed to break you of that spell. He goes, it was different for me. They made a point of keeping me awake and making sure I remembered all of it. They were trying to break me, trying to find out what they could about Paxawall and the Mage Towers and you guys and Serenity. And I was there a lot longer than you. I got there first and while you were fighting in the arena, every day it was still the same thing. And he goes, it was, he goes, it haunts my dreams. And she's like, she goes, he's like, I've heard. He nods. He's like, yeah. He goes, uh, I've been told that I have a habit of calling out in my sleep. Which at that moment, Mercy's like, hmm? Hmm? Who else you've been in a room with while sleeping who might know that? Hmm? Kind of the thoughts there. And in her head, except the young lady who was role-playing this at the time, she's like, she told me, she's like, Lamia? I'm like, hey, you want to ask? She's like, no, I'm not going to ask. <laughs> He's like, okay. Skip past that. But she had the thought. She goes, Lamia? <laughs> so, but she didn't ask. She just nods her head and such. And he goes, and he, they just kind of sit there and they're silent. And she goes, I hate him. I despise him. There's nothing in this world I want more than to see him dead. Mercy's nodding her head, but He's talking a lot different than he normally does. Like, he's just being frank. And he can, she can tell that he's very troubled. Like, he's really, like, just intense about this. And in her, head, in her mind, she's like, hmm, maybe I should cut this conversation out. You know, maybe I should put a stop to this. Because I see it's taking him to dark places. Again, this is the conversation I have with the character. And she tells me her thoughts. She goes, but at the same time, maybe he's never had anybody to talk to about this. I kind of went through it with Darsh, too, to a nature. So... You know, maybe maybe he's seeing a kinship in me like that. He's clearly not flirting with her. It's none of that action, but it's something. Maybe he sees me as a someone else who'd understand. So she decided to continue, she, and she 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 nods, and he goes, and he goes, you know, I know how you feel, and he just looks at her with a blank face. He goes, No, you don't. But you're the closest, I think, to knowing how I feel. You hate him for what he did to you and Darsh. You hate him for what he did to. Serenity before it was your land, the amount of people who lost their lives, and all of the things that he's done to the people you protect. And I get that. You know, what you went through. You remember most of it. He goes, he goes but there's not a living soul who hates him like I do. And one day, I'm going to kill him. I'm going to find him, and I'm going to kill him. And when that day comes... I think I'm going to need your help to do it. Mercy's a little caught off guard. She's like, me? He goes, yeah. He goes, let me just say that when the time comes for him to meet his fate, 
when his time comes, you're going to need to be there. And when that day comes, can I count on you? Young lady who was mercy, I gave her a moment. She said she wanted to think about it. She wanted to make sure you replied. She goes, yes, everything you said is correct. And as long as he's alive, people I love, people I protect, and the people I care for are in danger. And I can't let that happen. Tobias gets a little bit of a smile and nods. He goes, yes. He goes, I know I'd chosen the right one. He goes, I don't know when it'll be, and I don't know how it'll be, but one day, that opportunity is going to rise. And I'm going to ask you to stand by the promise you kind of just made. And Mercy goes, when that day comes, I'll be ready. He smiles. He goes, I, I honestly believe you will. Puts his bowl down, pours it out or whatever. He's like, if you don't mind, I think I'm going to try to get a little bit more sleep. Mercy's like, yeah, me too. Got a couple hours till the sun. They make their way to their bed rolls and lay down. And 20, 30 minutes later, Mercy again hears little sounds, if not whimpers, coming from his bedroll where he's already back into troubled dreams. She can't sleep because all she can think about is the future and what all would have to happen to ever reach a point where they could even begin to consider trying to take on someone of his power. Not Tobias, obviously, but the Emperor. And his kingdom, his empire, and the power at his disposal. And a fight of that nature, a battle, she goes, would cost a lot of lives. And she can't help but dwell on that thoughts. Things she's thought of before, but now it's really in the forefront of her mind. She's like, Oramon's not over, and as long as it stands, Serenity will never be safe. And I can't have that. Until she eventually falls asleep for a short period before she's awoken by Darsh. It's time for them to carry on. So. I like to put moments of serious role-playing, if you will, in the middle of places where people aren't expecting it. Um, you know, role-playing is always important in the game. You're, you should be role-playing every minute. It's not all rolling dice and swinging swords. There's being your character and growing them and becoming part of the story. Um, and once in a while, I like to give a character a moment to just by themselves interact with a situation. Um, because in those moments, I find that that's when they really have to define something about their character. You know, a choice is put in front of them, a situation they're made aware of, something's happening. And in that moment, they have to be like, I have to make a decision that's going to affect me and probably the lives of many, many, many other people, either now or in the near future. And that decision's going to roll on me. How am I going to handle that? Uh, and the opportunity of the actual conversation. Just two people sitting across from each other having a conversation. In that moment, for most of it, it was Tobias and Mercy talking. Not me, the dungeon master, and the young lady who played Mercy. It was these two people having a conversation in the game. And as much as possible, react occasionally she asked for clarification or asked me to repeat what I said. But more more than anything else, it was, it was a conversation between two characters. Um... And I knew what I was looking for, but I didn't have anything pre-written. We bounced off each other. Uh, and it was a very good interaction. I'm not doing a very good job at all of retelling it. 
Uh, because in that moment, it was just two people having a conversation. It worked really, really well. So that's an important uh, moment for Mercy and her relationship with Tobias that will definitely have an effect in the future at one point. You'd assume. So, just wanted to mention that. Hopefully, everybody's liking the story so far. I know there hasn't been a lot of big, important things happening yet. Um... <laughs> But we're getting there. There's the chance I may even end up ending a little bit early, which if so, we can do a little bit of Q&A stuff. Not that I'm trying to end early. Some of this stuff, it's sometimes hard to, to guess how long this is going to take. I may end up running late. I'm just doing my best to try to, to get there at an easy pace. Okay. So, they continue flying south and traveling in the ways that I've already described. Uh, well, thank you, Jim. I appreciate that. Jim says it's awesome so far. <laughs> they uh, continue going through. The paladins are learning, you know, stuff and talking about fighting undead. Things that Menandra and Fenton have learned over the past 10 years of, of regularly having to deal with different types of undead. These guys have been stuck in their keep. Granted, it's a horrible situation they're in. I mean, you can imagine that, being stuck in a building for 10 years, surrounded by waves of undead, knowing there's no way to get away. Uh, not that it was easy for them, but they haven't had to actually fight a lot of undead they're in their, like I said, late teens, early 20s when all this started, and they've been trapped in there now almost into their 30s. So Fenton and uh, Artemis, as well as Dandy, is giving them a lot of information on how to fight undead. Fenton and Menandra themselves quite happy and surprised to know how much Dandy knows about fighting undead. Uh, talking about different types of undead, situations where she's fought her undead, and she at one point slips up and says, and there was this time, Michael and I, blah, 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 blah. And Fenton goes, who's Michael? And like everybody else in the party's like, mm -hmm. and Danny gets quiet for a minute, she goes, uh, he's my husband. And they're like, oh my goodness, is he okay? Because, you know, it's a world of undead and he's not here. And Dandy goes, he's safe right now. And uh, I'm doing my best to get back to him. Fenton and Menandra and the other paladins are looking at her. And they could tell it's just Dandy, who's, again, very... Even, she's still very kenderish all the time. She has those moments of real seriousness, usually when it deals with talking about Michael. Um, but it's, you know, in those moments... But they can tell, ooh, this is a conversation we should let die. Um... And so they move on to other stuff. But during those, they, they learn a lot about Dandy. And it actually kind of surprises even some of her allies. You know, they, they know she's hunted undead, but they didn't know how much she knew about that, what her and Michael have learned and uh, over their time and learned from their magical spear Menandra. Um, she's just a really a large storehouse of information. Because if there's one thing about Dandy that you can't deny, she has... A memory. Out of all the characters, it's almost always Dandy who remembered something nobody else did. Um, it's part of her her character design. Uh, she, she, when she was created, she's like someone who's very silly and goofy, but she's very observant. And uh, as such, there's a lot of times when nobody else has a chance, I'll have her roll for something to see if she picks up on something nobody else does. Or if I'm saying... We get back in later in the story, and I'm like, some, I, I let her roll to see if she remembers something that happened that may be key to this. She's the one who can put those things together. Uh, so while she's 99% of the time silly, goofy Kender doing funny stuff in battle, uh, she has those moments where she's really clinching the wind for these guys. And especially now when they're in a world of undead. So as they're traveling south again, as I told you, even flying as they are, 
Um, it takes several weeks to get to the land of Shorn. As they're traveling, there's just more and more of undead. It's almost to the point where everywhere you go, you can see undead. I'm not saying it's just an ocean of, of dead bodies, but you know, every you look over there, you can see a group of undead. There's a horde over there. There's more straggling, and now they're seeing things like undead animals and other creatures, horses and stuff. Things riding undead horses that are probably a little more powerful than these guys want to mess with right now, and they avoid that kind of stuff. Um, but they're seeing a lot more different types of dead, and sometimes at a distance, it looks like some undead are moving very quickly. That uh, uncomfortably when they're described, remind them how, how Draven moves. Um, she doesn't ever see it because she's in the chest, but when they talk about it later, you know, she kind of like, yeah, that's yeah, kind of a thing. So they make their way, and as they do, the air starts to become sulfuric, stinky. Sometimes it's hard to breathe. It gets very hot and dry. As I've mentioned, it's a very volcanic area. So they start to see that vegetation, which already was at a minimal, starting to die out. And it just becomes rock and dirt and dead patches of ground. And uh, what few trees they see are broken or probably dead or just, you know, are living. The type of trees that could only, so rugged they could survive in a land like this. Not pretty trees. No leaves and things like that. But they got very deep, deep, deep uh, roots to get what few little water there is. And then they start to see the rivers of lava, small pools of them and rivers flowing. And the, everything is flowing towards them. Remember, they're going south. Everything is kind of flowing north. Uh, Menandra and Fenton, who in all their lives, they've been alive a long time, have never been to Shorn, have never had a reason to, um, had described as much of what they knew about it. I mean, they've been alive a long time. They've definitely heard stories. But even getting here, it's just worse than they ever thought. Again, stinky, sulfuric. You feel like you get a layer of just like sticky on you. Um, Dandy and Mercy end up being the ones on the carpet the most, mostly because Darsh getting sticky. It's, it's covered in hair. There's no place to wash. It, he does not like that. So he's he stays in Silmore, and it's mostly Marsh, Mercy, not Marsh. I put Mercy and Darsh together. Mercy and Dandy, the ones on the carpet the most, and they travel continuing to. Seeking uh, this mountain, the Mount Shrash, which for the record starts with a C-H. C-H-E-R-A-S-S-H-E. It's funny, uh, this is just an aside about the story. Uh, very often I see people ask questions either on Discord or in chat, and it always makes me giggle because the spelling they use for a lot of the characters and stuff is not the spelling that I use, and it's my fault because I'm telling the story. You don't really see it written down unless I'm answering your question or I'm, you're looking at the miniatures that I post online. Um, but it's always funny to me how people spell the, the weird words that I've come up with. Some of these words I've made myself, you know, so it's interesting to see how you would spell that when you hear me pronounce a word. So, I, interesting aside there. So, as they're traveling in, again, harder to land. Uh, they, they find less and less places where they can comfortable. They've lost any sense of water. They haven't found any pools or anything. What little bits of water are hard to find in Shirash. And while they're not normally poisonous, they do stink. Got that eggy sulfur smell and you usually got to boil them. Uh, or else it'll make you nauseous, but they're not like poisoned water. At least it didn't. But at this point, they're they're surviving purely on the water supplies they have in the chest of holding, which they brought a lot. So they're they're good in that regard. Also, there are times when Dandy and Mercy or whoever's on the the carpet at the time that it's flying will say that they feel like someone's watching them. Like they look around, like is there a flying thing? 
Is it the, is it the death? They look around. They kind of get that just momentary feel like, some, what is that? You know what I mean? And they've never felt that until they got really into the, this area. But Shorn is, again, empty, desolate wastelands, rocky ravines, volcanic mountains, very little life. The only people that lived here before all this happened were roving tribes of feral and cannibalistic gnomes. Feral, cannibalistic gnomes. Let's think about that for a minute. <laughs> again, as they, they go through here, what few lakes and streams they see are all lava rivers, nothing water. The undead in this area seem to wander about in groups, although there's no pattern that can be seen in any of their movements. So it's just like groups moving in different areas. Um, now, as they get in Shiraz and they start getting deeper, now they do start to see things sometimes flying in the distance. Uh, they do their very best to go around these things and give them a wide berth, and nothing ever comes close to them, which, uh, from what Dandy believes and talking with the others, feel that whatever it is must not have very good eyesight. Let's be honest. If they're dead, eyesight's not at a, at a high. You know what I mean? There's other things, but as long as they stay downwind of it and high up in the air, uh, none of the few flying things they see at a distance come out. Nothing as large as the drake. Of course, they do see some things that could appear to be gargoyle-like or wyvern-like, uh, even maybe undead griffins of that size, uh, which would be cool. Um, but never do they see anything up close to know for sure. But those would be the sizes they would expect. It's They're actually in Shorn for almost a week, week and a half before finally they find their destination. Mount Shirash is easily the largest volcano you've ever seen. Or sorry, largest mountain you've ever seen. Even larger than the dwarven kingdoms of Corman. The mountains, the huge mountain range they're in. This is bigger. One massive mountain. Glowing hot rivers of liquid magma roll out of the mountain's base, lighting the area in a reddish glow. Thousands upon thousands of undead roam around the area, avoiding the streams of lava. Most of them seem to be on the northern side of the volcano. Remember, they're going south. So it's a huge volcano. Super, super high. The type of height that would normally have snow on the top, but it's a volcano. So the heat is not really letting that happen. And they're not in an area where there's a lot of snow. Um, not that that would matter when you get high enough elevation, but the heat of the mountain and the lava and such... Is rough stuff. So as they come across this and they see so much undead, right? So much of it there. Uh, they can't help but sit there and they're like, okay, well, now what? You know, they start looking around. Is there a base? Is there a, a fort, a castle, a keep? Anything that would show signs of some type of leadership. They start watching the undead. They seem to be under anyone's control while they're roving around like I described earlier. They don't really see anyone leading them per se. You know, they still there's still several that just wander about all by themselves, and eventually will climb up or suck, get sucked up into another group, and now traveling with them. Um, so they're not like marching in perfect ranks. They're still a horde bumbling around, um, and because of the heat and the lava here, a lot of them are more skeletal than zombies. The heat is definitely would have increased uh, the that's the word I'm looking for when the body rots, the uh, decomping. There we go, decomposition. A lot of the flesh and stuff is going to be very shrunken here and dry and tight. Uh, and I'm sure there's been times they partially stumbled into lava or the heat of the fires gone up there and such. Occasionally what little 
uh, vegetation they find sometimes is on fire just from the heat of the area. So a lot of the dead here appear to be more skeletal or very, very shrunken. Um, which also could lead to the fact that many of these were some have been here a, lot, a long time. Now the characters that discussed our heroes, our companions, had chatted about, well, what do we do when we get there? They, uh, it was Dandy, Mercy, and Menandra who were on the... Uh, and Tobias. I'm sorry, there were four of them. Those were the four that were on the rug when they, when they knew they were going to be getting close. Um, they, couldn't, they didn't want to load it all up there, but that's who they got. And as they're flying around and they see the thing, they're trying to stay high. They still see the occasional little flitty fly thing, but they're usually pretty small and they're not close and they avoid those. Um, but now they're like, okay, we're here, now what? And they don't find any of those things I was talking about. No castles, no houses, no buildings, nothing at all that would imply an intelligent person had set up some type of living condition here. So at this point, their thought is, okay, next step is the volcano, right? Uh, Van Marl said that, you know, his master rose from the depths of Shirash. Okay, maybe he, or she said he, so they assume it's he, is inside controlling things. All right, cool. That's our next step. So they proceed to try to get a little bit closer, avoiding stuff, staying high when they can. And they start looking for a way in. Now, obviously, they could try to fly to the very top and, and, and fly down in, but that's almost right off the bat thrown away. It's very high up there. Breathing would be nigh impossible atmospherically to get up there. It's not like they have breathing gear, you know. As it is sometimes when they're flying, normally they have a hard time breathing if they fly too high. In this area where the air is already stinky and sticky, they have a harder time even flying as high as they normally would. Uh, but that's something they have to deal with. They're not even halfway up the mountain and they're like, there's no way we're getting all the way up there. Uh, Jim says, Ashley's saying, it was the heat of the mountain. <laughs> Tell me where you are. Heat of the mountain. <laughs> I like that. So as they're flying around again, they're on the north side of the volcano, mountain combo. Um, they can't really see it. I mean, there's a lot of what appear to be openings and parts where lava comes out and the lava's pouring out. It, it's not like it's like a drain. It's like, kind of like a sewage drain where half of it comes out with a space above. They could try to fly in there, looking for different areas. But there's a whole lot of undead on the north side, just roaming around. They're like, okay, well, let's, let's go around. It'll take a little while. They find a place to land, get some more in the air in the chest of holding, say, we're going to fly around the other side, see if the other side's any better. So they fly around to the south side. And as they're getting that direction, they can see there's less and less undead, which to them is a positive thing. Excellent. The undead appear to be hanging out more in the north. Now, as they go south, it does appear to be getting hotter and hotter. Supposedly on the other land of sh side of Shorn was also a great desert before it finally hit an ocean. Uh, but the desert itself was a great distance. So there was not much that lived in that desert, especially intelligent stuff. So from a from their what they know and what they've learned, their thought was, okay, if there's not a lot living down there, all the living seems to be north of Shorn, it would make sense that's the direction why the zombies are. There's not as much in the south because there were zombies, no reason to send your army south if there's nobody to kill. Or very few people, you know. Um... So they got around to the south side. And again, looking for entrances and such. And as they get around the south side, they can see that, because they're up still pretty high, down near the bottom, there appear to be several large cave-like openings. 
And they're like, okay, well, convenient. They don't see a lot of undead, but they see what appears to be the first sign of intelligence. Around these is a great wall. And it's like a weird grayish-white color, probably some kind of mud or stone, it would appear. They're up pretty high, they're looking at it. It stands probably a good 15 to 20 feet tall. Whatever it's made out of, it seems like it's shimmering. You know what I mean? Shimmering in the light kind of thing. Of course, in Shorn, a lot of the stuff gets that effect, like when you're looking over a flame and you can see the world's wiggly. Distant stuff always is like that, especially around here with the lava, so that could be what's making it look shimmery. But they're looking down, they don't see, but maybe just a very few rambling undead, and they're not in groups, and they don't appear to be traveling anywhere. They seem to be wandering around wherever. Um, and they're like, okay, well, maybe we can get down here, go over the wall, and, and try to go into one of those areas. So they fly down. Um, they're getting pretty close to the wall before Dandy screams and yanks the carpet almost straight up, and everybody else is grabbing on, trying to hold on. And she just janks it and whips back around. And they're like, whoa. And she's like, what is it? And she goes, the wall. Look closer. There is a thing in Dungeons & Dragons you don't find very often. And it's called the Living Wall. Which is funny because it's not alive. A massive wall of flesh and bones and appendages like thousands upon thousands of bodies merged together. Eyes and faces sticking out and it shifts and arms sticking out of it and feet moving around. A living wall can move, albeit slowly, and anything it kills it just absorbs into itself making itself even stronger. And it is very very hard to destroy because of its own regenerative abilities. It just pulls essences from the bodies and flesh elsewhere. You burn part of it, which flame and heat and lightning are probably some of the best ways to, to mess with a, a, a wall, living wall. You burn it, and literally the flesh will just kind of grow back because it pulls from itself. So doing a lot of damage to it may make it smaller because it's pulling resources from other parts to fix that. Um, but it's really hard to permanently destroy. And this one, Dandy had heard legend of something like this, um, but she'd never seen one. Um, in all of her time with Michael, she'd never known anyone who'd seen one. Um, and even the ones she heard of were never of this size. You find them in a dungeon, usually it's just a wall you walk down and then it attacks you kind of thing. This is a huge one on a scale never before recorded. And Dandy's like, we don't want to go down there. That thing can move and change its shape. Granted, we could try to fly over it real high, she goes, but my concern is what if there's something else down there? She goes, well, I think we need to find another way. I don't want to get close to that at all. Because again, it is intelligent. And them arms will start, if they have a weapon nearby, swing swords, grab at them, throw things. Those are bodies all mushed in there. There's appendages that can kick you and punch you and grab you and pull you in as the rest of the wall devours you and makes you part of it. But a living wall is very, very grody. Uh, but very cool, and I never had the opportunity to effectively use one. So I thought it would be at least to have one cool to have one make a cameo appearance. 
So in this situation, they decide they're going to have to go higher. So they start going up looking for other entrances. And luckily on this side, there appear to be a lot of opening, very honeycombed, very porous, if you will. A lot of places where lava probably poured out at one point uh, during different eruptions, because you can imagine as the lava erupts out the top, lava's going higher than normal. It's poking out all these holes and such. But then as things calm down, those holes dry up and the lava's just kind of coming out the bottom area at this point. And that's exactly how it worked. So they decide that they're going to try to go in one of those. Hello, Cameron. Welcome. They're going to try to go in one of those. And, you know, biggest fear at this point, the volcano erupts. Now, from what Menandra and Fenton know, it doesn't erupt regularly. You know, there's been eruptions once or twice every 100, 200 years. Um, because when it erupts, it's a big sauce. Like, it, you, you know it for hundreds of miles and cloudy, stinky air and all that kind of stuff. So it's, it's, it's a big deal when it does. Um, but it's not like a regular thing, so their hope is it just doesn't have to erupt while they're in there. Now, as a DM, would I do that? Maybe. But I didn't. So they find a adequately sized opening and fly down and land inside. The mountain, like any other mountain, is not you know, hot, it's not squishy, it's, the lava hasn't made it soft, it's still hard rock, and the rock, even at some parts, would normally be cool, but it's all just lightly warm, like a room temperature, where rock a lot of times has got that cooler to the touch, even at higher altitudes. There's enough warmth inside the mountain that it's warm to the touch, but not uncomfortably so. But it is stinky. There's that sulfuric smell is very strong here. Um, they can breathe, but it's not comfortable. Okay. So they start making their way down inside. And it's like a maze. There's times they end up popping out at the edge of the side of the mountain again. Everybody's out of the chest of holding at this point. Everybody's armed and ready to go. Let's talk about who's all there, right? We've got our four heroes. Dandy, Mercy, Darsh, and Artemis. Their two allies, Tobias and Ulrich. They've also got Fenton and Menandra. And there are still four other paladins, led by Christopher. Well, by Fenton, but under Fenton. They lost one against Van Morrow. So that's a lot of people. And as they travel through, they find themselves going up and down and winding. It's like walking through a sponge. If you can imagine what a sponge, you know, just all throughout it. Uh, and occasionally they come across a few very um, minor undead. Uh, a zombie here, a skeleton there. Nothing that they can't handle, uh, but they do try to be quiet and sneaky about it and take it out as much as possible in case something is there. Uh, Cameron, I have not. I'm sorry. I was out much longer today than I'd planned uh, my doctor's appointment, so when I got, I, I didn't have a chance to do that. I'll probably do it tonight after the stream. But no, I've not ordered it yet. But thank you for asking. So what few undead they have, Dandy is kind of sneaking ahead a, a little bit, but not far. She's staying visible where they can see her um, in case something were to happen and she were to fall or something like that or fall in a hole or anything like that. Um, she's being careful. But she's not getting far to their sight. But she's ahead just enough that when she does happen to come across something undead, she can hopefully sneak back and they can take it out quietly and quickly whenever possible. But they spend several hours wandering their way through this place. And they tried different ways of figuring out which way to go. Um, and it took them a little while to actually think of something, because I wasn't going to tell them, a way to try to find the right direction. 
because uh, there were no markings. The dead didn't appear to be uh, what few they came across didn't appear to be in any type of specific like guard location. They just happened to found their way in and were wandering around as well. But eventually, when they came to choices, they started asking which way seems hotter. That makes sense. If you're trying to get to the middle of a volcano where there's probably lava, we know there's lava because it's pouring out holes at the base, they want to head towards the heat. And it took them a while of random encounters because I wasn't going to tell them. You know, and so every so often I'd roll to see what they came across. A couple skeletons, a zombie, a couple zombies, whatever, you know. Um, it took them a while to come up with a way, and they finally started asking, hey, which way's the hottest? The right, okay, we're going to go that way. The left, okay, we're going to go that way. And that's when they started to, to find themselves moving deeper within the actual mountain. So, they've spent several hours, as I've mentioned, wandering through. Um, they were relatively well-rested, so you know no one's exhausted. They got to the mountain just a few hours after they had awoken, so it was relatively early in the day. So now you'd say it's midday-ish, if you will. And they've been wandering around, as I said, for several hours. And then they finally find something that appears to be of importance. Ahead of them, they see almost what you could see like an opening. Like it curves and stops, and it's like an opening. And they see light flowing in from this opening. And they hear a rumbly noise, though they can't quite make it what it is. Dandy sneaks ahead first and looks, nodding her head, everybody you know, waving. Everybody else comes up as well. And the rumbling they heard, of course, was lava. You step through the doorway and find yourself in a massive cavern. About 30 feet ahead of you, the ground drops off, revealing a massive lake of molten lava about 15 to 20 feet below. A little ways off to your right, you can see another larger rock ledge, um, right at the lake's level. In the glowing light, it looks like a beach next to a dark red river, and another cave entrance can be seen there. So I'm going to set this for you. They're on a big, open, rounded edge, and it's kind of rounded and off the edge of it. 15, 20 feet down, just a huge lake and river of lava. Now, if they look off the cliff, down to the side, there's another ledge about the same size, maybe a little bit bigger, but it's lower. And there's another entrance out to it. But the lava comes right up to the base of it like it's a beach at the ocean. And occasionally the lava waves will flip up on there, much like water waves would flip up on the beach, but not quite as, as strong. Lava doesn't move quite that fast. Of how they first found Michael, how poetic. Very true. You know, I never thought about that. That's, that's, that's very true. They found him with the lava and the, and the bodies being thrown in there. Very intriguing, Panda. I'd never put that together. I like that. Poetic. So... They see this, and they go out there, and they're looking around a little bit, and they're careful, and they can tell the thing's super sturdy, so, you know, they checked it. It's not going to break or anything like that, but they're out looking around, but they can see this other lower one, and there's another entrance, so another cave entrance would have to lead to that at some point. And they remember that there was a turn a little ways back that didn't seem hotter, because they're the same distance, um, and they just kind of had to pick one. They ended up where they were, but that other one might lead over to there. And looking around, they don't see anything of importance, but that one's down more on the actual lava's level. So their thought is maybe that one's going to be a little bit better, right? That's the direction they think that it uh, would probably be best to go. This is their conversation. 
Uh, let's see. What else are we reading? Oh, yeah. The ceiling above is lost in the darkness, and the lava seems to be moving slowly like a gentle river. The heat from it, though, is very intense, and breathing is difficult. After a few moments, this is after I gave him a few minutes to talk, you turn to go back into the tunnel, because they're going to go see if they can get down to the beach. This I waited until they said, we're going to try to get down there. And I'm like, okay. For a few moments, you turn to go back into the tunnel, but you stop at the sound of a deep, rumbling voice. It has been a great while since I smelled the flesh of the living. Very deep voice. They start looking around. Came out, came from somewhere in the room. Start looking down. Is there something down on the beach? Looking around. When about that time, rising from the lava below is a massive draconic head on an incredibly long neck. It rises a hundred feet in the air above you. Two long, thin arms ending in taloned claws grab onto the rock walls around you. So imagine it comes up and then clamp these two big claws kind of clamp down on this ledge. The dragon is massive. It has no wings and appears to be much more serpent-like in shape than the dragons they're used to seeing. Its scales were once a mixture of red and green, though they are faded now and many of them are missing. The creature seems unaffected by the lava, but you can hear popping sounds coming from its dead flesh. The beast's eyes glow with an inner fire that seems cold and empty. As it opens its mouth to speak, you can see green ichor dripping from its huge fangs of the teeth that are left. I care not why you've come here. I care not what you hope to achieve. This was the last mistake that you will ever make. The only thing you've found here is your deaths. And with that, the beast attacks. That's how I read it to them. So again, I want to point out, this is not the, this is more of the uh, serpent-like, I guess you could say, uh, Oriental-style dragon. Um, so it's long and thinner, but it does have the claws, and it's up there. And so its attacks are to try to bite and to claw and to claw. Maybe some magic too, but I'm giving you an idea of how this battle begins. It's launched up there, it never attacks with both hands at once. It's like it's using one hand to brace itself while it claws or bites, or just claws or just bites, but at one, it switches hands depending on who it's attacking. Um, but at any given time, because it is a lava flowing, there's a current in there. It is usually has one hand gripped onto the stone to kind of brace itself. The party finds themselves obviously in combat. Uh, the first thing you'd ask is, did they try to run back in the cave? They did not. And when I asked them, do you want to run back into the cave? The first response I got was, no, because if it has a breath weapon, we're going to be stuck in a straw. And I was like, that's a really good idea. That's very true. Its head would easily reach that doorway. If they were in there and it shot in fire or cold or lightning or whatever, there's no way for them to get around that. So that was a really good idea on their part. I remember that. They're like, no, because then we're stuck in a straw if it has a breath weapon. I'm like, good call. 
So they start to spread themselves out because it has got a big claw, and it's got, but they try not to be too close to each other so that way it's not hitting multiple people with an attack. Smart combat, right? Keep the squishies in the back. So Artemis and uh, Tobias in the back. Everybody else is kind of building a wall. Uh, so imagine that on one side of it, like this rounded arc, right? So this is them with two squishies in the back being protected by everybody else. You've kind of got Darsh and Menandra at the front. Fenton. Okay, so as I'm going, then you got Paladin, 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 so on and so forth. And um, Mercy and Ulrich were attacking the One Claw, while Dandy and Paladins were attacking the Other Claw, while Darsh, Menandra, and Fenton were trying to attack the body itself. And occasionally it would, it would back up so they couldn't get a good hit at it, but when he did, it lost the ability to make a bite attack. It could still swing with one hand, but it can't back up and bend down. So the way they did their strategy would affect how the dragon responded in combat. And I had multiple strategies written down for how, as the dragon, I was going to attack based on what they decided to do. Now, in this situation, the dragon did not immediately go after the squishies. Because I'll be honest, just didn't consider them that big of a threat. There's not much Tobias was going to be able to do against a dragon of this nature. Not a dragon, mind you. Some type of Dracolich. This is an undead dragon. Hopefully you picked up on that when I said it's dead flesh. But it is a dead dragon. It's very powerful. Usually they're more powerful, at least magic-wise, than a regular dragon would be. Maybe not quite as physically strong. So they... Battle begins. Uh, again, the dragon has two claw attacks and a bite attack. And that, and on my paper here, I'm like, on the third round it does this. On the fourth round it does that. I had specific things that were happening based on where we were in that combat sequence. And the longer they took, the more things escalated. So it spent several rounds doing what I said. Claw, claw bite, switch claw, claw bite, attacking. They're attacking the arms and the hands, trying to get the you know, cut off claws or break the hands and do damage to it where they could. Uh, Darsh and Menandra, who has the large spear, have the longest reach. And they're in front in the middle. They've got the best chance of hitting things, uh, hitting the body itself. Uh, Fenton being close as well, still has a little bit of heals, and he can always use them on himself or one of those two if he needs to. Um, but those three were kind of in front. Then there was a space. You've got Dandy and several paladins against one claw, and then you've got Ulrich and Mercy, and I think one paladin on the other claw. Tobias and Artemis in the back, casting spells and casting heals whenever possible. What few battles they've had that day have all been melee. None of their spells have been cast. They had everything they needed to jump into this fight. Now, whenever someone did get bit, they had to roll versus poison. Remember I mentioned the green Icor. Uh, Icor, Icor, how do you spell it? Um, if bitten, they had to roll versus poison because it's acidic and poisonous. Not that it'll melt your flesh, but it can infect you. Almost like a zombie infection. So, there's that kind of thing. So people had to roll for defense. Some succeeded, some did not. They took extra damage. Did it have long-term effects? We'll have to see. So this goes on for a few rounds of combat, and they're doing some damage to it. On the fourth round of combat, after they'd all done their turns, it was the dragon's turn, 
it did something a little different. Its eyes glowed with a white light, like it got brighter. And so did something around its neck. You see a white light glowing here as well. And after a moment, it flashes. Like a wave of light goes out. The eyes are the same thing, but it flashes there. And when that happens, everybody felt like they'd been punched in the gut. The wind knocked out of them. Half of them fall into their knees. Just a big hit. And every one of them, who's not elven or dwarven, aged five years. Elves and dwarves aged 50 years. Because it's a percentage, not a specific amount of years. So this wave comes out, and they all feel weaker for a moment. They all take a hit. They lose some minor hit points. They take a little bit of hit point damage as well, but it's a, a weakening thing. And they see several of the wounds they've caused heal up. Just a few. Because a lich stays alive by devouring the aura and, and strength of the living. That's how they stay alive. Just saying. And this thing just sucked a chunk of life out of everybody in that room. Now, nobody here is real old, so that didn't have any major effect. You know, maybe somebody got a little gray or streak in their hair. Maybe Darsh got a little gray streak on a cheek, you know, kind of like thing. Five years. These are all pretty young people with the exception of Fenton. Fenton probably felt it the hardest um, because Menander, being elven, can live thousands of years at this point, so 50 years is not going to hit her quite as much. That's the maximum it could take. Fenton probably felt it the most, but he's still not super old. He's still middle to middle age, a little older than that. Uh, but it did. he did feel it more than anybody else did. So combat begins again. Now, Dandy has got her magical daggers out. Her hoopak's a plus one, but she knows this is a pretty powerful dragon. Probably most people's regular weapons are not going to even affect it. It's going to scratch it. Wouldn't even break the skin or the scales, will be. All the paladins have decent magical gear. Number one, they're paladins, so they're, they're not slouches. And number two, they were the only five left inside of this fort that probably had a lot of options in there. You know what I mean? If there were weapons and magical stuff, gear and armor that were sitting there, it'd be stupid to just leave it. So they put on the bet. You know, they may not have used it every day because they're not really high enough rank to use that kind of thing. But when it got to the point they're going to leave, why leave that behind? So they're all wearing relatively strong armor that has some magical protection. And they've all got strong enough weapons to do some damage to the dragon. They're not doing the damage some of our characters are because they're still much level uh, lower leveled per se, but they are not wasting their time. They're not just smacking and nothing's happening. They are doing some damage in these situations, which is one reason why occasionally the dragon will switch hands and take a swipe at that group because they're hurting the hand. And he's hurting this one, it clamps down, which they normally have to jump out of the way or they get squished, and then attacks with the other one. And sometimes the breath will attack the middle, or the mouth will attack the middle, or the hand and mouth will go in the same area, depending on where the more damage is being done is a lot of times where he's targeting. So a couple of more rounds go through, and this fighting continues. Dandy's using her daggers, and she's trying to just stab at it and get in there as quickly as she can. And she's doing a pretty good job of dodging the hand when it does come down, and she's more somersaulting and rolling out of the way. Paladins are taking a few extra hits, because um, they're not as quick, and they're in pretty heavy armor, and they're young. They're inexperienced with this type of thing. They're way too level, low level to be fighting something like this. 
but they're doing their best to hold their own. And they all have a little tiny bit of healing ability because they're paladins. They can heal a little bit of their own wounds, and they do, which is helpful because Artemis doesn't have to focus quite on them as much. A couple more rounds go by. The fighting's happening, and the dragon backs up for a moment, and everybody kind of stands up, and he takes his hands up, and he goes like this, and then as he does, he raises his hand, and the lava comes up, and then he flings it, and like a wave of lava starts coming running at them. Now, the wave itself isn't a solid wave. There's spaces in it. It's just where his hands are, and a bunch of lava was flipping. And so, the only thing they can do is try to brace against the lava or try to move to get out of the way of where the lava is. So everybody was making, like, dexterity checks and movements to see if they could get through. Some people took some damage from the lava. Some people managed to get out of the way of it. Um, but um, a fight like that was very much the kind of thing you'd see in, like, a video game where the boss shoots a thing and a wave's coming and there's openings and everybody's got to move to get in there. I hadn't really planned it that way, but... When I, when I explained this back when it happened, people were like, oh, it reminds me of a battle fight in World of Warcraft or something. I'm like, oh, that's kind of poetic. Yes, that was what my thought was. Uh, Rowdy says, I opened YouTube and this was randomly opened. Oh, well, hi. Welcome by. <laughs> Thanks for uh, randomly stopping in. <laughs> so... These things are going well. They manage to get out of the way. The dragon comes back down. Battle continues a couple more rounds, just as it did. Now, we reach the seventh round, seventh or eighth round. It was eighth round. And one of the paladins rolls a natural 20 and does an extra good wound. Like, does us a chunk of damage to the hand and arm that it's attacking. And I had it listed here. Let me tell you which one it was. Because uh, we lost, I think we lost Mavis Dumont, if I remember correctly. So I believe this one was Victor Winchester who did this. So Victor Winchester, big old handlebar mustache, oh. and uh, he just gets a really good stab with his sword. Does a deep cut and like a tendon cut, the type of thing that a dragon's going to notice. Anybody would, right? The dragon backs up again. As he does, his eyes start to flash. But this time, when they glow, they're not glowing white. They're glowing red. And it takes a little bit longer. And people are trying to shield themselves because they're ready for this wave to come hit them. And this time, it turns directly at that paladin. The one that just did the hit. And instead of a wave of light flashing and hitting everybody, a single focused beam goes directly from the amulet around its neck and hits that paladin. And he screams. And if you can imagine someone screaming until their voice goes hoarse, where they can't scream anymore, imagine that happening in six seconds. And when the light stops, the paladin falls to the ground. Dandy looks over, and he, the young man is dead. Well, they used to be young men. The old, old man that is lying beside her. Mustache extra long, skin wrinkled and shriveled up, eyes just gaping open, skin pockmarked with those little liver spots and such, laying there kind of shriveled up. The dead old man next to Dandy. And the battle continues. 
so I'm going to take just a moment. I know I'm being very descriptive in the battles today, because let's be honest, this is the big one. Um, is everyone enjoying the level of description I'm using, or would you like me to breeze over that a little bit more? I know we've talked about this, and most of the time people like the description of the combat. You get a little bit more feeling of what they actually went through, but again, I'm just checking for feedback to see what you guys think. And I was wondering. So, take a sip of my drink and allow the leg to go by. Panda says it is interesting. Okay. I'll take it. Take it. Ashley's enjoying it as well. Oh, and she always speaks for Jim. Excellent. I'll take it. <laughs> I will continue as such then. So, battle proceeds for several more rounds. The dragon actually casts a couple minor spells. Spells that would do some damage, um, and probably do. Artemis is getting to the point where she's she's over halfway through her, her spells at this point, and she's used most of her big ones. She's still got a bunch of little spells. Remember, she's got her staff of healing. I told you she had one of those, a staff of, of curing. Um, and it has a lot of healing in it. Uh, remember I said she, she can actually recharge that staff, but it takes special conditions. So she gets back to her temple and she gets the artifacts to do it. She can actually, she's high enough level she could put some charges back into it, although it would take some time and some expensive material. Uh, Jim was so enthralled he spilled his drink. Oh, well, I'll take that as a positive then. <laughs> so... She's using her heals, but she starts using her staff heals, which don't heal as much, but also don't take as long to cast. You remember we talked about initiative when you're casting a spell and things are kind of going out like that, and the spell casters, sometimes they're a little bit slower because it takes longer. The staff doesn't have that. The only downside is you got to touch with the staff. The staff does not have a lot of ranged heals. <clears throat> so occasionally, Artemis is jumping up closer to the line of combat than her allies would prefer her to. And they keep yelling at her to stay back. Because when she does get close, the dragon will take a pot shot at Artemis. Why not? Uh, Jim says, I'm enjoying you going to detail about dexterity checks and such to put the individual more into those details. Excellent. Excellent. One of my favorite memories of this battle is the young lady who played Artemis and Darsh. Because... She had the privilege of arguing with herself. Because Darsh was the one who was yelling at her to get back out of the way. And then she was yelling back, I'm here to heal! And by God, I'm going to do it! And she literally was playing both roles going back and forth. And she did it well. Did it well in that scene. But it was funny to watch because she was kind of arguing with herself. And then, of course, Mercy as well, the other young lady, was also being Mercy and yelling at her for being in there. And then thanking her for the heal, of course. So this goes on a bit longer. More things happen. A couple rounds later, amulet starts to glow white again. Wave goes out, hits everybody. Everybody ages five years, except for Fenton and Artemis and Menandra, who age 50 years. Fenton, visibly, looking a little older now. His hair, which already had just the tiniest bits of white at the roots when they started this adventure, is, is very white at this point. You know, grayed out, if you will. And but he's still moving. He's still, but he, you could tell he's definitely going a little bit slower than he was before. Artemis and Menandra don't have any physical differences whatsoever. Again, fifty years is not a lot to an elf, but to a dwarf, it, it can still be a chunk. 
So Fenton's now moving a little bit slower, and he ends up taking a couple extra little hits because his ability to dodge has gotten lesser. Most of the Paladins now appear to be in their 40s, just like Dandy and Darsh and all that kind of stuff, and Mercy and so on. And the battle continues. Now, when the dragon attacked someone behind my little dungeon master screen, I would roll to see who he was targeting. Sometimes, like when a paladin stabbed him, or Tobias cast a spell, or Dandy did something special, or Darsh did a big chop at his neck, he would target the person who did the damage. But if nobody did anything more targetable, they all did okay damage, I would roll to see who he would attack. And the players... They know that. I'm like, hey, let me see who he attacks this turn. I roll a dice. I'm like, okay, he attacks so-and-so. Okay, he attacks so-and-so. So there was a little bit of randomness to it as well. Even for me, I wasn't always choosing. It was a, hey, maybe it's going to go here, maybe it's going to go there. There's an important reason why I tell you that. We get to the 15th round of combat. This is a long battle. Much longer than our heroes are used to fighting. And at this point, they're older, they've used a lot of their stuff, and they've been dwindling down the dragon, but every time that he uses that amulet, he heals. When he, when he hit that paladin and took that big chunk of life, it had a huge healing effect on him. Huge. And it feels like the fight's just going backwards in those moments. We got to this round, and once again, the dragon's eyes and amulet begin to go red. And I rolled the dice. And after I rolled the dice and I saw which number was attributed to who, I said to them, the dragon's head turns and focuses on Ulrich. And then we rolled for initiative. Darsh won. By this point, he'd already used his zoom attack one time to zoom over to a claw and help out Dandy, who'd been in trouble. Uh, but he won initiative and was able to take a hit. T Tobias's uh, spell he was casting was going to make him last in the realm. Artemis was doing a healing spell. I want to say also on Dandy that round. Uh, Menander and Fenton were attacking the body of the spell, or of the, the dragon. But during all this, the dragon turns and focuses on Ulrich. And Ulrich rolled poorly, and his action was actually going to be last in the round, other than the spellcasters. But the dragon, because of the spell and thing he's casting, his was also pretty poorly. He got to go before Ulrich. Um, but Mercy got to go first. Not very first, but after they did uh, those three. And so when it became Mercy's turn, young lady played Mercy asks me, how close am I to Ulrich? And I said, you guys have been standing next to each other the whole fight, because that's what Ulrich does. He's there to protect Mercy. They've been attacking that one claw with one other paladin, who I think had been knocked unconscious at that point and been healed, and he was already back up fighting again. And then the other, well, there were three, but now one of them's dead. So there's two paladins and Dandy on the other claw. Um, she said, how close am I? I'm like, well, you're right next to him. You have been this whole fight. 
And so she says to me, oh, what are you going to do? She goes, I step in front of Ulrich. And that's what Mercy would have done. That is what Mercy would have done. And so the dragon's red light flashes. His eyes flash, and then the amulet shoots a red light, striking Mercy square in the chest. Dungeons and Dragons, very often, has a lot of randomness to it. And then a lot of things are planned. And sometimes, when a dungeon master is rolling for a randomness thing, he's not looking at the dice. He already knows who he's going to target. But he likes to make it look a little more random. So everybody was a little surprised when I already had something ready to read in this situation. I'm going to read it to you. Mercy feels the dragon's light strike her, and it feels as if her body is exploding. Mercy feels the life being ripped from her, and she is powerless to stop it. The light finally ends, and Mercy crumples to her feet, or from her feet, too weak to move. Her friends all share a look of horror and fear as they stare at the little old woman in Mercy's armor. And then we rolled for initiative again. The dragon continued its attack. Darsh and Menandra and even Dandy, everybody had no choice but to continue fighting the dragon. But Artemis rushed forward, and her and Ulrich dragged Mercy away from the edge, just basically leaving the, the paladin that was theirs trying to fight that one claw himself at this point, at least hold it at bay, to give them time to drag Mercy out of the way. Um, so they drag her back out of the way, a little bit more against the wall, where she's right out of combat, and Artemis gets down, and she wants to cast a healing spell, but there's nothing to heal. Mercy didn't take damage. She didn't get hit or cut. Mercy just got old, and there is no healing spell for old. And that's an interesting thing, because I've been asked that in Dungeon Dragons. If someone dies of old age, can I cast a spell to bring them back? And the answer is no. You cannot. Cannot bring, there's reincarnations, that's different. But just bringing someone back from the dead won't work if you died naturally. Sicknesses and illnesses, maybe. If you can bring them back and heal it, yes. But if someone dies of old age, there's no coming back from that. And you, anyways, you'll remember I said very early on, Tobias told them, if you die in the sands, you die permanently. There's no coming back. Needless to say... My players were quite distraught. But they still had to fight a dragon. Darsh attacking, Dandy attacking, Paladins, Menandra, Fenton. They're all attacking this dragon now with a more eager urgentness. Because now they've got to try and get this done. Because if they can't finish this and whatever they're here to do, if she dies before they get out of here, she's gone. There's no bringing her back. 
It's an interesting question, Jim, and we will address that. But they don't know. They don't know. I will explain it in a little bit, but I can't tell you now because they don't know either. You'll, I promise you'll find out when they do. Good question, though. Great question. But I still had something else to read. And this was directed towards Mercy specifically. Ulrich kneels next to you and takes your hand. Even with your failing eyesight, you can see the tears in his eyes. My lady, he whispers, what have you done? Mercy tries to speak, but she's too weak. Her breathing is labored, mostly because her armor is very heavy and it's squishing her. Don't move, says Ulrich. Save your strength. His head bows and you can hear the pain in his voice. It was I who was supposed to protect you, not the other way around. I swore on my armor, on my honor, that I would serve you and freely offered you my life. But you claimed my heart as well. You were willing to give your life to save me. And his voice falters. Gently he leans down, and you can feel his lips on yours in a gentle kiss. Forgive me, he whispers, but I can do no less. Before anyone else can speak, Ulrich is on his feet running. Both his scimitars are in his hands, and he moves quickly towards the dragon. Out of the corner of his eye, Dar sees the young man barrel pass, but he's not quick enough to grab him as Ulrich hurls himself off the edge of the cliff. The dragon tries to move backwards, but Ulrich's actions caught it by surprise. His swords cut deeply into the undead flesh. The dragon lets out a loud scream, and the two of them fall backwards, disappearing into the lava. Everybody else is like, what just happened? They race up to the edge. Most everybody. Artemis is still there with Mercy, who is trying. She, she, she just sees him go, and she can't even lift her head. Artemis is trying to get gets her helmet off and such, and trying to loosen the armor so she can breathe easier. Again, she can't heal her. Even Tobias runs up to the cliff and is looking down. Again, the dragon bursts from the liquid magma. You could see Ulrich still clinging to the side of the beast. And even though you can see he's covered in lava and his body and hair is on fire, the man is continuing to slowly climb the beast, one sword strike at a time. At this point, everybody with a ranged weapon started attacking the dragon. Tobias started whipping out magic missiles. Dandy started throwing her daggers. Darsh reached in and started grabbing his javelins out of his little thing in the back and starts whipping javelins. Anything that was ranged. Fenton had a crossbow. Monado didn't really have a ranged weapon and she's not going to throw her spear. It's the only weapon she's got. But even some of the other paladins, everybody has knives and everybody just starts doing everything they can. The dragon is trying to grab Ulrich, but I mentioned it's a very long serpentine, and while its arms are strong, it can't quite reach the back of its neck, where Ulrich is stabbing up the side. Remember, the dragon tried to turn and flee, but he got on his side, and he's been climbing up the back. 
and he finally stops climbing. Ulrich appears to have grabbed onto the chain, holding the amulet on the dragon's neck. You can barely make out his features through his blackened skin as the, as the flames continue to cover his body. Ulrich strikes repeatedly at the chain with his one sword. The other one's basically just cinched in there. Finally, the chain snaps. The dragon again lets out a scream and purposefully dives forward into the lava. At the last second, Ulrich hurls the chain toward you all as hard as he can, just before the two of them disappear beneath the lava. You imagine an amulet on a long chain. Long chain. This thing is whipping, and it's more up than sideways. And it looks like it's not going to quite make it to the cliff. It's going to be close, but not quite there. I asked my players what they were going to do. Dandy screamed Darsh's name. Darsh turns and sees Dandy running at him at full speed. And Darsh exactly immediately knows what she's looking to do. He hunches down and puts his hands together. And Dandy jumps into them and with all of his strength hurls her upward as she jumps. Dandy had to make some impressive rolls in this situation, even for someone as dexterous as her. But she was successful and grabs the chain, which also partly wraps around her arm when she grabs it. Now, it's fire hot. She can't help but scream out as it's burning her hand, but she doesn't let go. She rolled for that. And as she starts tumbling back down, she reaches out her hoopack as far as she can, and Darsh had to make an impressive roll, which he did, and grabs her hoopack as he, she falls by and manages to pull her back up onto the cliff. A dragon's claw comes out of the lava and smashes onto the stone ledge as it pulls itself back out of the lava. Ulrich is nowhere to be seen, lost within the fiery depths. With a voice that sounds almost rasping, the dragon says, Return to me my amulet, and I shall let you live. Dandy lets go, finally. Burns on her hand and her arm. Wrapped around the chain. Darsh doesn't hesitate. And he kicks it towards Fenton, who brings that big warhammer right down on it. And the amulet shatters. The dragon screams, its eyes again glowing, but now flickering. And you can see it's raising its hands to try to grab at them, but as it does, they can see scales and pieces of even the flesh underneath falling off of its body. It sees the same thing coming off of its head as it slowly starts to crumble apart, the lava louder sizzling and popping as the pieces hit it. With a final, final mighty bellow, 
the dragon falls backwards into the lava. And again, his body immediately begins to pop and sizzle as it melts. But something else happened. As it was falling backwards, it slashed forward as quickly as it could with its one other hand driving his claw directly through the stomach of Menandra. She screams, staggering backwards as the hand slips back into the lava and there lies only an open wound. She grabs herself as she falls sideways and Fenton tries to grip and Fenton grabs her. Well, everyone takes a moment to breathe. Fenton rushes to Menandra, who is clearly in very bad shape. Everyone inhales deeply. They can't help themselves. It's like just a reaction. And as they do, they can feel strength coming back to them. And as they do, the life that was stolen from them returns. And with a small coughing fit, Artemis reaches over and grabs Mercy, who once again looks like her regular self. Lady, you have to help, yells Fenton, looking at Artemis. He's sitting there holding Menander in his arms. Artemis stands and begins to walk over and feels a hand on her arm as Tobias leans in and says, You cannot heal her. Artemis looks at him, shocked for a moment, and then realizes what he's saying. He just shakes his head. Artemis walks up and, looking down, lies and says, I'm sorry. There's nothing I can do. Darsh and Mercy and Dandy make their way down the tunnel to come out on the beach end just a little ways down to see if they could see anything. Oh, sorry. Darsh and Mercy do. I'm sorry. Not Dandy. Dandy is sitting there watching Menandra coughing, loaded blood coming out of her mouth. Fenton, tears in his eyes. But of her corner eyes, she sees movement, and she looks over, and she sees Tobias, very casually, kick Menandra's spear off the ledge, down into the lava. And he looks at Dandy, and Dandy looks at him, and he nods, without even thinking, or even really trying, The chest of holding is in her hands, because she's standing next to Artemis, and it takes her nothing to pickpocket. She sets it down and climbs inside. Mercy and Darsh are standing on the beach, looking down at the lava. Mercy trying to fight back the tears. Darsh puts his hand on her shoulder. 
and then chuckles. Mercy turns, horrified, ready to knock the shit out of him, and is insulted to see the smile on his face. She feels Darcy's hand on the back of her head, spinning it. And out in the lava, they see a figure walking slowly up out of the flames, just like someone walking out of the surf on the beach. Even though his armor is mostly melted, his cape and clothing is gone, his hair is disheveled, Ulrich is walking through the lava towards them. His one hand seems to glow with a whitish light, and in his other hand is one of his scimitars, glowing a bright, cold blue. Now, I'm not sure if anybody remembers this, but there have been multiple times through this story that I have brought up a couple insignificant facts, but I kept bringing them up. And I can tell you that my players didn't remember them, nor did they pick up on what I was saying to them either. The heroes began giving magical items to their followers. And they had found something that she gave to Ulrich. I believe it was a ring of fire resistance. And then while fighting in the kingdom of the dwarves, they found a scimitar. A mod magical frost brand scimitar. That cuts deeply with an icy coldness. And makes the bearer immune to flame. And heat and things of that nature. Very powerful side effect of a Frostbrand sword. Uh, but I kept mentioning it. Just casually enough that hopefully when this happened, no one would remember it until his ring and sword are glowing as he walks out of the lava. Two things I put in the story specifically, because I want to tell you the very first thing I thought of in this story was that exact moment of Ulrich running and jumping at a dragon. Because I'd heard a song uh, on the end of a NCIS Los Angeles episode. Flipped around TV one day and came across the end scene, and it was a slow motion scene. And there was a cover of a song called Running Up That Hill by Placebo. And it is... The first song that ever... In my head, this scene immediately popped out. Just him standing up and turning and running. What first seems like slow motion, but then faster and faster as that song is playing. And then he just jumps in the air with those two scimitars, stabbing into the dragon. That all came to me literally in like 30 seconds. Just hearing 30 seconds of that song. That's the first thing that hit my mind. And I started planting those seeds throughout the adventure to get to that point to make sure that that happened. Ulrich had to come on this adventure, even though she wasn't happy about it. Ulrich had to be there to, to get the sword, had to make sure that you guys knew he had the ring. All of that was seeds to get to that point. Without letting you know those seeds were there until he walks out of the lava. So Dan, it's the story thing. It was the hook I'd been working on the whole time. Hopefully it was relatively cool. I uh, was so worried I was going to blow it. 
<laughs> you guys would have seen through it all and be like, it's all right, he's got that sword. So uh, hopefully a couple of you found that surprising. It was I did. I got the girls, though. They didn't see it coming. But I'm going to continue to read a little bit now that I've taken that little aside. Ulrich walks up and stops standing in front of Mercy. And Mercy hauls off and slaps the living shit out of him. Almost knocking him back into the lava again. Just smack... She's got a gauntlet on. She's not bare hands right now. She... Bam! Across his face. And he almost falls backwards. And then he stops and he looks at her. Shock and fear in his eyes. Like, oh my god, you're so mad at me. Now, I want to mention, I did not say this. This is what she chose to do. She then grabbed him by the front of his armor, what pieces hadn't melted, and pulled him forward and kissed him. And that went on for a couple of minutes. And Dar's like... Well, that's going on. Up on the other ledge. Fenton, the paladins uh, that are still alive. The one that died from the sucking the life out, he didn't come back. He was dead. They lost, ended up losing two paladins total. The one from the Death Knight and one here. Uh, he was dead. There was no coming back from that. Uh, but Fenton's paladins and the people all gather around Menander, who's in very bad shape. There's literally a hole in her stomach and what little healing Fenton had left and the minor heal was the last spell Artemis had. Not really, she had lots of spells. To ease her pain, but not enough to save her life. Menandra, coughing. You know, blood cover mouth, very dramatic. Thanks everyone. Thanks Fenton for not giving up faith in her. Thanks our heroes for helping them defeat what they believe is the source of this entire evil nastiness that has been taking over the world. Thanks the paladins for standing by their side in the time they needed it the most. And through her tears says that she only wishes she could f continue to fight by their side as they fight to take back this world for the living. It's around this time, not about this time, around this time, Darsh and Mercy and Ulrich come walking up and Dandy and Artemis get big smiles at the sight of Ulrich. Even though, again, his armor's pretty much melted at this point. He's got, he's just covering the important bits, if you if you know what I'm saying. Uh, as for the blackened face comment, because they asked about that, doesn't matter how much you've washed yourself. You have that sulfuric dirt and stuff on your face. He's immune to it. But the dirt and stuff and grime on his body is not. And that would blacken in the flame. Plan that specifically. In case you're wondering why did his skin go black. It didn't. All the stuff on him was burning off of him. You just couldn't see him through it. I actually researched that a little bit to make sure I could pull that off. As they're sitting there and... Menandra is saying her goodbyes to everyone. Fenton's got tears and everybody's sad. Even our heroes. Tobias draws attention to the cave entrance. 
Two figures begin to appear there, softly at first, glowing, becoming more physical, but at a point stopping, clearly spirits or some type of undead, grabbing their weapons, preparing for yet another battle. The two elven spirits walk towards them. Menander's eyes open widely as she whispers the name of her two boys, the names of her two boys. And they come and both sit down on each side of her, take her hands, physical enough that she can feel them. Now she just open tear crying. And they tell her that she won and that their spirits are now able to pass over in peace as are the spirits of all those who've died in this plague that their sacrifice Menander's sacrifice frees the spirits of the dead and gives a chance for the living to once again take over the world take back the world not take over Menandra happy. And as she says that, you can see that she starts to glow just a little bit. Almost in the same way they are. And everyone can tell that her spirit, it appears, is separating from her body. And Menandra feels like, it's almost like she's about to sit up, but then she stops and she looks at Fenton and the paladins and her face looks sad. One moment ago, she was happy to look at her sons and knowing that she'd set them free. I was probably going to run a little over. Uh, but, you know, she now seems sad when she looks at them. One of her sons nods and says, It's your choice, Mother. You can come with us now to the other side. Or you can stay and you can help those who will fight to carry the light to this darkened place. Menandra pulls her sons closer and tells her that she loves them very, very much and that her heart is now at peace knowing that they will be able to rest. But looking in Fenton, struggles to sit up a little bit she says that she once swore to Manara, goddess of light, to fight the evils of this world. And though, while she may have lost her faith for a time, she begs to be allowed to continue to serve the goddess. Her sons smile sadly, and the eldest of the two nods his head and says, Your request has been granted. Both boys' spirits stand up and place their hands on Fenton's shoulders, and they fade away. Fenton's eyes begin to glow with a light, a warm light. And in an echoing voice, a voice that sounds like two voices, both his and one feminine, asks to be given Menander's spear. Dandy, pulling off the small leather it was wrapped in, steps forward 
and hands to Fenton the Menandra spear that they had brought with them. Once he has it, he looks at it, confused for a moment. Then he looks at Dandy and smiles. Fenton, and whatever else is Fenton, casts a spell, a very powerful spell that Fenton himself normally would never be able to do. Spirit of Menander rises from her body as her body takes its last breath and moves towards and into surrounding the magical artifact staff spear Menandra. And it now glows with a purplish light. Fenton turns and offers the spear to Dandy, a smile on his face. I believe this is yours, come the echoing voices. Hurry now. You must get this to him before it's too late. Time is of the essence. Tears in her own eyes, Dandy thanks Fenton, smiles. And everyone starts to look around and trying to figure out the paladins, like, I don't know what's going on here and everything. And then it's like everything starts to shimmer and the world around them starts to go black. And Tobias whispers some words they don't understand as everything fades into complete blackness. And then they wake up. Their heads, arms outstretched, still on the book in the middle of the table. They wake up, body sore, creaking like it hasn't moved in a while, muscles stiff. They look exactly as they did when they went there. All of Ulrich's armor is back as normal. All the weapons they've lost, because things that got broken, daggers that were lost and not found. Everything physical was there. Dandy grabs the Menander spear, which they had out, and again sees its glowingness. And then she has a hesitant smile as Menandra speaks to her. He's still here, but we have to hurry. They wrap up the Madonna spear and put it in the chest of holding. Now comes the hard part. How do you escape? Now you'll remember that the exits aren't always the same. And it took Lamia and Tobias several years to find a way out of the sands. Tobias calls for the librarian. And as if he's been standing there the whole time, everybody spins to see he's right there. You have found what you need, Master Tobias. We have. It's time for us to head back. The librarian nods, says, if you'll follow me then. He starts walking a distance, and again, they get that feeling like they're just zooming down, even though they're walking regular speed, like looking behind them, there's rows of books, like they're zooming far away from her, even though it's regular speed. And they stop. Tobias sees a book, and he taps it, opens it, looks inside, says a few words, closes it, puts it back in, turns to the librarian, who nods, and again, 
They then turn around and go back the direction. So now they're not going back to the room. It's like a whole other row, different colored books. This happens two or three times until they finally reach the last row of very large tomes. Tobias smiles. And he opens the book and reads some words. And several of the books seem to shift. And in between them, where books were on the shelf, now a doorway, a portal appears. And looking through it, they see what looks like cold and ice in the inside of a dark cave. Tobias says, it's only going to stay open a moment. We have to hurry. So we have to go one at a time. People start going through. Much is the standard party order. Tobias says he'll have to go last. and He and Mercy are standing there. and As everyone starts going through, disappearing, becomes Ulrich's time and Mercy gives him the get going. Ulrich smiles and steps back through. And Mercy goes to turn to take her turn and she feels a hand on her wrist. And she stops and she looks at Tobias. Says, you're not coming, are you? Tobias says, I don't want you to worry. I don't want you to worry about me or anything else. If there's a way to kill him, I'm going to find it. It's in here somewhere. And when the day comes... When the day arrives that I'm ready to do that, I want you to remember your promise. I'm going to need you. Mercy takes his hands, you know, that classic warrior grip thing, and shakes it, and she goes, when you need me, I'll be ready. Tobias smiles, and Mercy turns and walks through the portal, and it closes behind her. Everything is pitch black, and it's really cold. In fact, you've never been so cold. Your hands and feet are starting to go numb. Quickly, everybody starts lighting up a fire, trying to warm up. They are, in fact, inside of an icy, frozen cave. In the middle of the cave is a spiral of ice twisted up. When you look at it, there's a hole in the middle, like you could stick a spear in there or something, or a, a torch. They light some torches up to get some warmth, and looking out... Of the cave's entrance, all they see is snow blowing, and they see they're very high up in a mountain. Yes, Panda, where Michael found Menandra. Infravision doesn't work in here, because everything's cold. Mercy's the only one who can really see. So when they get to the exit, they're like, they have to use, they have to fly out of here, but they have to hurry. Time is literally almost running out. The only thing they know is that they're north and they have to go south to get Serenity. Michael had told Dandy stories of the approximate area, though he'd never been back, and most of that had been wandering in a stupor, hypotherm, cold, freezing to death, and all that kind of stuff. But she had an, they have an idea, so Dandy thinks that she can get them out of here if they hurry. Quickly hopping on the chest of holding in the chest of holding, and then hopping on the... Only Dandy is the one on the curtain, because it's very cold, very windy. She takes off, she throws on some warmer coats and says, we gotta go! And they take off. And she starts heading south. And it takes a while. They have to land a few times in literally what for her is neck-deep snow to open the chest to let people have air and let know what's going on and step inside and warm up for a minute. 
They don't light a fire in there. It's always warm in there. It's comfortable. It's super warm to her when she gets in there. And then again, she hops on and she goes. And eventually, after almost a day of travel, she, she crosses out of the snow into what would be a sunny, warmer land, if you will. You know how Merge Worlds works. Ice and then bam, you're in regular weather again. Almost like a sharp line across the map. At this point, they land and Darsh comes out. Now, in the time that he's had his ships, he's learned a little bit of navigation. You'll remember the one weird thing about Merge Worlds is the stars never move. Because you remember, the world doesn't turn. It's not even round. The suns circle Merge Worlds. But he knows enough about the stars to know the approximate direction they need to hend. And sure enough, now he and Dandy are on there, correcting courses needed. And they travel again for days, almost a couple of weeks consistently having to change direction when they need to. They travel nearly non-stop by carpet. But it takes them a good almost four weeks before they're finally within sight of Serenity. Everyone excited. They land at the keep. First, and we're going to go to the temple first because they're in a hurry. They decide to stop at the keep, make sure everything is okay. They stop at the keep. Mercy's knights come out and they're like, hey, good to have you back. And they're like, we have to get over to the temple really quick to save Michael. Now, one thing I didn't tell you before they left the sands, because it's my fault and it really didn't affect the story that much, but all of them had to roll something. They all had to roll the dice. They had to roll a 10-sided dice to see what the sands did to them. Age five year, age one year, lose one year, lose random weapon proficiency, lose random non-weapon proficiency, lose five years. All items that you have are aged. All items are repaired. Gain a random skill. Weapon gain. So time could have given them age, could have given them youth. Different things could have happened. Um, Mercy got a little bit younger. Artemis lost a skill. Darsh, I want to say aged a year, and Dandy lost a non-weapon skill or something like that. It was nothing, none of them were all anything really, really bad. But I know, the only one I really remember is that Mercy ended up getting like a year younger. Which was kind of funny because it made her a little bit closer to Ulrich's age. Because remember, she's older. Hey, Turtle, what up? Yeah, you want to watch in the beginning. You don't want to, you don't want to watch the stuff I'm talking about right now. I promise. We're going to run a little late. Um, probably by about 15 minutes. Uh, but this is big sauce. You're going to want to, not that I want you to be here. I just don't want to get ruined for you. They're like, Lamia should have brought Michael to the temple five or six months ago. Is everything still okay? The knights look a little bit confused. They're like, she arrived yesterday. She said that you and Tobias just headed to the Dark Moon Keep yesterday, and then she teleported over here, and she's, you know, she left, but he's already over there. What you think about that? It's taken them almost five weeks to get here. Which means when they were in the icy cave, they were still freeing Corman. And even though they came out of that cave technically before they left, the sands is a strange place. 
they their staff it's still ticking through time. Doesn't matter if they went back in time. Menandra has still got his soul in there for up to a year. They're still in a hurry. Going back in time did not reset that clock. It just meant they weren't quite gone quite as long. Yeah. They they they've been to them they've been in the sands for close to 6 months at this point. But they came out almost a good month before they went into the sands. Technically, there were two of each one of them on the world at one point. So they're back early, but remember their internal clock, the internal clock of Menandra, still counts that six months. They were gone for Corman, the traveling time in between. They have literally days left, if that, to get there. And that's if the calculations, they said about a year. There's no specific. They don't even know if they're in time or not. Hopping on the carpet, Dandy zooms over. Darsh does too. Mercy gathers the knights and you know, they grab horses and they start heading over. But Dandy doesn't have time to play, so she zooms over. Artemis is also on the rhythm. As much as she hates the flying carpet, she already went them because you know. As they get, so they get there and uh, they find out they've only been gone, you know, the time that they were. They go inside to uh, the infirmary where they keep where they're keeping Michael in a, in a private room. Dandy once again takes out Menandra and unwraps it. They keep her wrapped up because Dandy doesn't like her, like to touch her and stuff. But takes her out. And in her mind, Dandy hears Menandra say that she must press the spear against his head. Dandy does so, and for a few moments, nothing seems to happen. But then Menandra begins to glow, brighter and brighter, and there's a flash. And Michael's hair, which, remember, was still stuck in that white-purple thing mode, Menandra starts to fade back to its natural color. Menandra fades back as well, and after a moment, Michael's eyes open. He's a little fuzzy, a little woolly, you know. And he looks up to Danny and says, What happened? You can understand that Danny just jumps on him at that point, hugging and crying and all that stuff. And he doesn't quite understand what happened, but he knows that she's very upset, so he's going to be very supportive at this time. Lucas arrives, because he heard Artemis is back. And uh, Lucas is happy to see her, of course. And he escorts her back to her quarters. And uh, there she finds that Tevin is there with baby Sarah. She's very excited to see Sarah. Draven has been gone for about 24 hours. He had to go do something. But Tevin stayed. He, the baby's protected in here. No worries about that. But Draven had to do something important. We'll talk about that later. Mercy and Ulrich again arrive with the knights. They talk. There's been no real trouble, no issues, no problems from Oromon. What little type of things that went on through the kingdom they've managed to take care of. Quan is the regent while they're gone, was overseeing it. Everything went well. Darsh and Dandy together explain everything that happened to Michael. Well, Artemis is seeing to Seraph and Mercy's talking to the dudes. And uh, Michael feels perfectly fine. Like he'd been took a nap. And he doesn't remember anything. He doesn't know anything, so they have to hear the whole story. At the end of it, once everything's done, Dandy and uh, 
Go by one turn. Oh, yeah. Dandy had to... Dandy and Michael head back to their home. Remember, they got a little house there. Darsh goes back to the keep with Mercy. He's going to be staying there for a little while until he returns home. And Artemis just gets to spend time with Seraph. Now, that evening, of course, it doesn't take long, but a celebration happens. Everyone's happy to be home, and everyone's happy Michael is safe and such. And uh, everybody's very enjoying Michael's there feeling perfectly fine. Danny's like, you sure you don't need rest? And he's like, no, I'm good. And she's just telling all the story and parts that he hadn't heard yet. And he's just bewildered. He's looking at Darsh and he's like, did that really happen? Darsh's like, no, no, that really happened. No, she's not making that up. That really happened. <laughs> he still has Menanda strapped to his back once more. Menanda occasionally saying something in his mind when Dandy's telling the story. And Dandy gets a little grimace on her face, doesn't like that because she's not a big fan of Menanda, especially with all what they had to go through. Everybody has spends a good time hanging out, has an evening of celebration, getting back to uh, home and such, if you would. Discuss what's going to happen next. After hearing what's happened and what's all gone through, Michael decides that he wants to travel. He wants to head to New Light. New Light is the home of the Knights of the Light, which he was a long time ago, which are technically run by his uncle Gunther. Um, he says he thinks it's time he goes back to them with everything else that's gone on and all that him barely surviving. Um, it's time that he and Dandy go there because she's never met him. Uh, I have notes here. Big celebration. Party outside at Keep. Dancing. Music. Food. Darsh eating lots of pie. That's one of the notes here. Artemis is there with Seraph and Tevin. Uh, enjoying their time and such. Um, Ulrich asks Mercy to dance again, uh, which she agrees. And then when they're dancing, he thanks her. And when she asks why, he just says, for being you and letting me be there. And they have some chatting role-playing stuff. The sun begins to go down, and of course it becomes night, and the parting goes on, and Tevin asks Artemis to uh, hold Seraph. Which she lets him. Baby loves Tevin. Loves hanging out with Tevin. And she, he leans in and whispers, he's waiting for you outside. Artemis smiles and excuses herself and steps outside. Once again, reuniting with Draven. They have a moment. They talk. She fills him in on the important stuff. It takes a little while, but they go through that. And then, because they're... they're by themselves. They're off in a little cove. She takes out something wrapped in cloth. And inside, Draven sees a sword in its sheath. Artemis hands it to him and says, you have to hide this. You have to protect it. I don't know why it's important. I only know that it is. And it might mean everything or nothing but I'm pretty sure you're the one who's supposed to protect it until he needs it. He goes, who needs it? She goes, I can't say for sure, and I'm hoping it's not what I'm afraid of, but all I know is eventually it's going to be needed. Draven nods and smiles and says, well then, I'll be returning. I'll leave now. I'll be back in a couple of days. I know where I need to put it. I'll be back soon. She smiles and gives him a kiss goodbye. Draven's off. 
course, that's the sword destiny, for those of you who might have forgotten. He also finds out that he and Tevin had started building, they started building a home. Uh, it's about a few days away, up in the woods north of here. Um, but they wanted to have a place outward, because, you know, he's not just living in the temple that much. But And Tevin, good old one-hit Tevin, they've lived most of their lives lately in the vampire world. You know what I mean? It's They've been over there. They kind of have a way of living in their kind of things. They're like roommates, so they get a place. Um, mostly... Uh, there's going to be a lot of... They, they're going to move around and take care of stuff as needed. Uh, let's see. So I have what now is going to be the cleanup. We've basically got through a bunch of stuff, but there's a couple things that I have to read to you now um, that are important. And this may take a couple of minutes, so hopefully you don't mind staying with me for a couple of minutes more. Um, so... These are, a lot of times you're going to find at the end of an adventure, I have little exit stories, little things that I read to the characters to exit out. Uh, Darsh, Michael, and Dandy, along with a small group um, from Paxwall, our Paxwall-bound travelers and workmen are going to be leaving Serenity about a few days later. Pandy, you can't come up here, sweetie. Over here. Thank you. Thank you. Um... They go to the Realm Gate and port closer to Paxiwal, um, and that's how Darsh is going to make his way home. Uh, once they arrive there, Michael and Dandy split off from the group. Uh, Dandy and Michael are going to be heading east to New Light. Sorry. We're good. Uh, going to be heading towards heading to New Light. Darsh continues south with the rest of the folks from Paxwell. Always happy to have Darsh around. Talk about protection, right? Um, but they're heading northeast towards New Light, and Darsh continues on south with the other folks who are traveling. Uh, once reaching Paxwell, uh, Darsh learns uh, by hanging out in the Kroniar district that a ship will arrive within a week. His ship has already left as it was supposed to, heading back. Uh, he doesn't really have a way of reaching out to Dorham, uh, but he within the week he catches a, a ride to Kronayar, basically gets himself, uh, pays for his passage, and heads on back to Kronayar. Now, once he reaches Kronayar, he gets back there, I'd say early to midday, leaves the ship, uh, finds out that his ship has already left to head back to Darstopia, They're running an errand there, and then running some stuff there, and then coming back. Um, he understands that's how it's supposed to work. So he decides to make his way to the... I told you that he and Lamia were opening up a store as well as they had a home here, opening up a store to sell the goods and such that they get a hold of. I'm going to read Darsh's ending. Darsh steps through the doorway and into his shop. He is amazed at the change. Shelves are filled with human and elven goods. And there are several patrons throughout the store. From the back, he hears a familiar female voice and smiles. Stepping through the back door, he sees Leela step into the room. As soon as she sees him, she freezes. A great smile grows on her face, and then she's rushing around the counter towards him. They embrace, and Darsh is overwhelmed with happiness at the touch of her. A moment later, they separate, smiling patrons around them, turning back to the goods for sale. Leela pokes Darsh hard in the stomach. What took you so long? Darsh can only grin harder as she continues. Wait, don't tell me. There'll be time later. 
The two of them walk back to the counter where Darcy sees that a corner of the store is still empty. I can't decide what to put here, says Leela. Either more human goods or elven goods. Both are selling equally well. Neither, responds Darsh. Leela looks up at him, confused, as he puts his arm around her, leading her to the back room, and says, We're going to need that space for something special. Come, lass, let me tell you of the dwarves of Corman. Now bear with me, because I'm setting something up here in just a minute that's going to be very important. Um, because I forgot to set it up earlier, because I'm an idiot. Uh, but now I'm going to read to you the next section, if I can, uh, while I'm doing this. Give me just a quick minute. I feel bad that I didn't do this earlier. All right. There. Found it. Okay, sorry. It's going to be important in a minute. It takes Dandy and Michael several weeks to reach New Light. The area has grown greatly since Michael was last there several years ago. The patrols they come across question them thoroughly, but once Michael mentions his relations to his uncle, and he and Dandy are quickly let through. The Knight's Keep of New Light is a huge structure, well fortified and well guarded. Michael speaks with the knights at the front gate. One of them recognizes him and greets him warmly. The faces of the men are shocked when Michael introduces Dandy as his wife, but they quickly regain their composure. The man who knew Michael sends a message to his uncle, Lord Gunther, and then guides them to his quarters. Dandy has met knights and such at many times, and it's possible that even the Lord Gunther had met Mercy and Artemis at times, but she'd never really had the opportunity. Um, she's never seen so many in one place, though, other than at the Battle of the Citadel so many years ago, known as the Valley of Sacrifice, you remember. Dandy really wanted to ask the knight that she passed if they'd been at the battle, but the knight escorting them kept walking too fast, so she didn't have a chance to ask him any cool questions if he was there or not. Finally, they reached a large wooden door, and their escort knocked. A voice was heard inside, and the escort opened the door. Michael and Dandy stepped into a comfortable office. A warm fire burns at the hearth. Several comfortable-looking chairs sit near it, while weapons, tapestries, and trophies adorn the, adorn the walls. The end of the room sat behind a large, well-covered, and well-made desk. It was Lord Gunther, surrounded by stacks of paper. He was the leader of the Knights of the Light, and Michael's uncle. He was an imposing figure, tall and strong despite his age. His long mustache marking a face that radiated with both wisdom and experience. He looked up as the escort announced them, and a smile comes to his lips, and he rises and comes around the desk. Dandy hears the door close as the escort leaves. My boy, says Gunther as he shakes Michael's hand and then embraces him. It's good to see you, son. I was afraid I'd not again have this pleasure. If you remember, last time I was here, Michael had come to speak of what he viewed as his sins, and he had to go north to find his place. And his uncle knew at the point that he was in rough shape, but didn't really have a way to hold him. I have traveled a long road since we spoke last, uncle. 
A dark road at times, replied Michael quietly. I see the change in you, lad. I no longer see the turmoil in your eyes. Gunther smiles and turns to Dandy. Something tells me you played a large role in that. Dandy's still back by the door, kind of twiddling her fingers nervously. Uncle, it is a pleasure to introduce you to my wife, Dandy Nyan Nettleith Uthweiler. Gunther steps up before Dandy. Dandy holds her hand out a little nervous. She knows that most humans don't accept the fact that Michael's married to Kender and that Kender not only disliked but hated in many parts of the world. And she holds out her little hand, trying to look very professional and shake it very respectfully. Lord Gunther looks down at her small hand and then drops to one knee throwing his arms open. With a huge smile of relief, Dandy rushes into his embrace. Tears of happiness falls as she hears him whisper, Welcome to the family, little daughter. Thank you for helping him find the light. The rest of the evening, the three of them spend together sharing the tales of their adventures. Lord Gunther is an avid listener, laughing loudly at their exploits. He seems to be especially interested in serenity, and mercy in her nights. The tales go late into the night, and it's good to see Michael laugh as they all enjoy each other's company. Many nights were woken from their sleep that night to the <laughs> Jesus Christ to the mysterious cries of someone yelling, "Wagaga gaga gaga!" Now I told you guys that there were a lot of running gags for us. There was the story where Dandy used that as a bird call. And it became a running gag. So, well, she's retelling the story. You can imagine in the middle of the night, everybody sleeping. All of a sudden, you start hearing gag, gag, just this loud scream as she's telling the story. To them, it meant a lot to hear that part of the story because it was such a running gag and yet an important part of their history. So, it meant a lot to the characters to end like that. And now we're going to go on to another character. It's been a few weeks since her friends had left, and Mercy was once again out with her horses. She'd missed the simple pleasure of her morning rides. As she pulled her horse up to the stable, Flynn rushed out to lead the horse to its pen. Mercy enjoyed a moment looking over the pasture before a voice behind her caught her attention. Greetings, Lady Mercy, came the cool female voice. Mercy turned and looked Lamia in the eyes. She knew it, was, she knew it would only be a matter of time before this visit would occur. Standing with her was Angus, who also nods in greeting. Remember, Angus is the mage overseeing the mage tower being built in Serenity. I'm glad to see you survived, continued Lamia. He stayed behind. Mercy nods. Lamia, with a sigh of sadness, goes, As he wished. I do not know what he plans, what his intentions are, but he said he felt that only you could truly understand what he'd gone through. This last bit was said with a bit of ice in her voice. The tower is complete, states Angus, and my work here is done. The new head of the tower is named Thakar Fireflame, and he's inspecting the tower, and she'll introduce himself to you within the next couple of days. Lamia lets Mercy know that she's resigned her position at the Tower of Paxawal, and is no longer one of the head mages there. She has several personal matters that she's going to need to deal with, 
and she will be gone for what she believes is going to be quite a while. As Lamia goes to leave with Angus, she stops and turns back to Mercy and says, I truly do wish you and your friends the very best. What you all have achieved in such a small amount of time is mystifying. I hope you all end up well. The two women nod each other respectfully. Lamia and Angus walk away. As they're about to be out of space, Lamia stops one more time and turns just for a moment. Looking at Mercy, she says, If he finds his way back, please tell him I understand now. She turns and the mages continue up the road to Serenity. Is everything all right, milady? Asks Flynn, who is walking up to her. Mercy smiles at her young squire. For now, I think. But I have a feeling we've not yet reached the end of a very difficult path. Seeing concern in the young man's face, Mercy gives him a quick push, nearly knocking him over. No reason to, reason to worry about it now. What will be will come, or will come to be when it is time. Now go grab your sparring weapons. Let's see how you've been, how well you've been practicing. With a huge grin, the boy runs off to get his weapons. With a sigh, Mercy takes a drink from her flask, watching the mages disappear in the distance. She couldn't help but worry about Tobias. She hoped he was okay and that one day she would see him again. She starts to walk back to her keep, thinking about absent friends and the future. Uh, shadow left again? Shadow? Potentially. And now I'm going to read an important one. Oh, that's not it. That's the wrong one. Hang on. I got the wrong thing up there. That's somebody else. All right. So you remember that Draven looks a lot like this. Artemis looks a lot like this. Now, even though their relationship is not what would be called normal, if you will, um, no one ever really judges Artemis for anything that she does. And so Draven and Tevin spend time building and living in their home in the woods a couple days north, which for Draven is just a few hours run when it's full speed. But there are some evenings that he does stay in the temple with Artemis, usually coming in through the window, not liking to come through the gates. No one ever says anything negative about him and stuff, but people are still a little nervous around him and kind of what he represents. Lucas, still not a big fan, since Lucas knows he's the guy that managed to successfully take her away under his watch that one time. Okay, i got to read this stuff now. Artemis awakens in the darkness in her room. It is still very early in the morning, and she can see the stars in the sky through her window. Looking towards her son's crib, she can see Draven's silhouette. Artemis smiles, knowing how much Draven loves to watch their son sleeping. Artemis stretches and then begins to sit up. Suddenly, she freezes in total fear. 
As she had placed her hand upon the bed, it had come to rest on the strong, familiar arm of Draven. Artemis's eyes quickly moved to the form at Seraph's bed. Artemis could not move. She could not speak. Something had frozen her in place, and she could only sit there, helplessly. Suddenly the candles throughout the room ignited, casting an eerie glow. The figure is obviously a man, approximately six feet tall. He is dressed all in black, and he is wearing a black-brimmed hat that seems worn and aged. His hair is short and dark. Slowly the man turns his head, looking over his shoulder. And for the record, exactly like that. This is another one of those situations where I designed a character and then stumbled across somebody perfectly looking just like what I wanted him to look like. Happened with Draven? It happened with this person. Let's see. It's only the man turns his head looking over his shoulder. Casually he turns back and reaches into the child's bed. Artemis wants to scream or shake Draven awake, but she is still unable to move or even speak. After a moment, the man withdraws his hand and turns to face Artemis. He is clearly human, appearing to be in his mid to late thirties. He would be considered ruggedly attractive under other circumstances. There's the thin line of a scar starting an inch over his left eye, going down to the center of his cheek. And those eyes cold and calculating, with a hint of malice, they seem to glow in the candlelight. While the man's face shows no emotion, his eyes look like they are screaming. Slowly the man in the hat steps forward, coming right up to Artemis. He looks down at her for a moment, slightly cocking his head to the side, as if contemplating something. His mouth doesn't move, but Artemis can sense his thoughts. Not yet. A moment later, he turns and with a last glance at the cradle, walks out the door. Once again, the candles go out, returning the room to darkness. And Artemis feels herself freed. Draven, she cries out, climbing out of the bed and rushing to Seraph's crib. Draven is up in an instant, sword in hand, looking for a threat. Artemis looks in the crib and finds Seraph smiling up at her. Gathering her, her son in her arms, Artemis tells Draven what happens. He does not hesitate and does not question her. Taking her hand, he leads her from the bedroom. There is no sign of the man in the hat in the adjoining chambers. because She has her own private rooms off the bed. Draven leads her out of the quarters and into the hall. On the ground next to Artemis' chamber's door lies the body of the Templar whose job it was to guard her door. Draven checks him and finds he is alive, but unconscious. Draven rouses the man, who is surprised. Draven tells him to sound the alarm and to summon Lucas. Barely a moment goes by before Lucas, Tevin, and a squad of Templars arrive, Artemis quickly describing what happens. Lucas goes into a rage, shouting out orders. Templars run in every direction, beginning a complete search of the temple. 
Lucas then begins to question the guard. It takes only a moment for both Lucas and Draven to agree the young guard had been bespelled. He was a competent and loyal Templar with no record of infraction. The temple is searched throughout the night from top to bottom until Lucas is satisfied the man in the hat is not there. Lucas, Tevin, Artemis, and Draven, and Miasha gather once again in Artemis's quarters. Everyone is very shaken and very concerned. Lucas is already making arrangements to double Artemis's guards and patrols. Miasha is in a frightful state, questioning Artemis for every detail. Draven and Tevin had searched Artemis's quarters for any signs of the intruder, but there was nothing. Not a footprint, not a mark. Finally, everything calms down, and Draven and Artemis are back in her room. Draven had sealed the window securely until more permanent defenses could be installed. You will not be coming in and out of the window anymore. Artemis couldn't get the man in the hat out of her mind. Who was he? He had to be powerful to render both her and Draven helpless. Was he an enemy? Why hadn't he attacked? If he was not, and if he was not, then why did he enter the way he had? What did he meant by not yet? Artemis laid Seraph back into the cradle. He was exhausted after the night's activities. Suddenly, something catches her eye. Reaching down, she picks up a small metal tube. It appeared to be silver. Draven steps next to her and watches silently as she opens one end. Inside is a small, rolled-up piece of cloth. It looks very aged. Unrolling it, Artemis's heart sinks. She doesn't have to look at Draven's reaction to know the writing is written in blood. And in the center of the cloth is written a single line. For he shall be a child of destiny. And that's the end of that chapter of the story. So I'm hoping you guys enjoyed that. Um, this storyline, uh, especially the stuff that was in the sands, going on an undead world, um, bringing Mercy and Ulrich close together, his moment, um, setting up Tobias and Mercy's conversation in the cave, and of course finishing with the man in the hat. Um, I really liked the way the story worked, and I really liked how I was able to set up a lot of different things for the future. So there's a lot of different ways uh, the story could go, because all of these things really don't seem linked. It's almost like just a whole bunch of different special events that could all cause them a whole lot of trouble. So, yes. Um... So that was my story. I was particularly proud of this chapter. Um, from the beginning where Draven returns, everything that happens in Corman, the quest uh, to save Michael, and of course everything in the sands. Um, I was particularly happy with the ending because everybody got their happy ending except Artemis. Like Everybody had a really good happy ending. And you'd think Artemis was about to get hers. And technically it was until that moment. Um, but more importantly, I've introduced 
someone who's going to have a very dark effect on their lives in the future. So, I'm quite excited. For the man in the hat. And for the longest time, that's what they know him as. When referenced as the man in the hat. If you're wondering, uh, the picture, that is Carl uh, Urban from uh, a movie called Priest, where he played a villain. Um, really good movie. Didn't get anywhere near the credit it should have. Phenomenal movie. Uh, but that is my favorite Carl Urban role, and I'm a huge fan of Carl Urban, and I'd wanted to use him for a while. Um, but while searching around for a picture of a guy in a hat, I literally came across this picture, and I'm like, that is exactly what I wanted. Do I pick on Artemis a lot? Oh, maybe. It seems that way. I'll tell you what, young lady I pl who played her, sure thought so. Um, but that kind of happens when, uh, you know, you're playing D&D. Trust me, I like to pick on everybody. I mean, this whole storyline is because Dandy was trying to save her husband. So you could say there was some of that. Um, kitties are freaking out. Uh, but yes, there's going to be... Uh, I could tell you that that guy you see on screen uh, is not just a problem for Artemis. I'm a real big fan of him. In fact, I was asked recently, other than Draven, what are some of your favorite NPCs? And a lot of times for me, I like the heroes, but I really like the villains uh, because I think a story is only as good as its villain. You know, if you don't find a villain threatening, if you don't find the villain worthy of the effort you have to put into defeating him, then it really sucks the juice out of your story. He's my favorite villain. Villain. Let's put it that way. I'm going to say he's my favorite hero. But he is my favorite villain. So. Then there was that. We did end up running over 24 minutes late. I was afraid I'd get done early, I'll be honest with you. Um, Hopefully you enjoyed today's story. I would really love to hear your feedback on this uh, in the comments here or on the Discord channel. Uh, I would, this, again, positive and negative comments. Happy to hear them both. I'd love to hear your feedback on this chapter. Um, next Thursday, we will be starting the brand new next chapter in the saga of our heroes, um, which hopefully you'll like too. Um, if you're hanging out today and you had a good time, please be sure to click like. If you're watching this later, please be sure to click like. It helps. Hit subscribe if you haven't, and be sure to join our Discord channel by going to my website, OnlyDraven.com. Now, there is a social media contest starting tomorrow. You want to win you some free loot? Uh, check out my social media accounts. I'm going to have it up in the Discord here within the next 10 or 15 minutes. And I'm also going to have it up on the website a little bit later today as well. Um, you got a chance to win yourself some free stuff by just liking and sharing some pictures and posts. So hopefully you'll like that. Uh, the more uh, social media accounts I have that you follow, the more uh, chances you have to win. So uh, hopefully uh, you will be interested in that. Um, but yeah, thank you for coming by on this first Thursday Merged Worlds, first of many, uh, which is now a weekly series. So hopefully uh, you will continue to come back and share my story with me.
But I'm going to call that a day. Thank you all for coming so very, very much. The next stream will not be tomorrow night. Saturday night will be... Um, uh, you know, I'm, I'm on the fence. It might be more Stoneblock, or it may end up being a Jackbox community night. I haven't decided yet. But then uh, Sunday starts the brand new schedule where this becomes my full-time job. So uh, I'm excited to jump into that and share it with you. So hopefully you'll stick around and let me do that. <laughs> Special thank you as always to my members. Uh, your guys' continued support of the channel um, and all of this stuff is overwhelmingly helpful. Thank you so very much for getting me to a point that I can do this more with you guys, uh, as well as those who've been donating lately. Again, those things, all that drastically helps more than I can begin to say. So thank you so much for that. And an extra special thank you to my moderators for all the very, very hard work they do. And they do a lot of stuff you don't realize. And an extra, extra, extra special thank you. Well, not for this kitty butt that's in the way, but for Miss Panda Blossom, for that kick-ass dragon down there, that she sent me today, and my wife's bat, but I'm partial to the dragon. Uh, we'll see him in a much more visible place here uh, by the next stream. But I love it, Panda. Hardcore love that. I'm so excited to have that up here behind me from now on. I'm just, I'm thinking I may move some of this stuff out of there and put it right underneath the dice because that's a real visible section on the stream. So underneath the dice, I'm thinking of putting it there and moving the Funkos over there. Sorry, I'm doing it backwards. Funkos up here. And then D&D stuff over here. Like that. <laughs> okay. Thank you all for coming by and listening to my tale. Uh, I will see you again very, very soon. I hope you all have yourselves a wonderful evening. And have a great day. <laughs>